Okay. Okay, every hi everybody. And we're going to go ahead and get started. If that's okay. Is staff every, everybody on staff ready to go? Okay. Okay. West Hollywood Planning Commission acknowledges that the land on which we gather and that is currently known as the city of West Hollywood is the occupied, unceded, seized territory of the Gabrielano Tongva and Gabrielano Keech peoples. This planning commission meeting is being live broadcast and teleconferenced on the city's website and is also provided on a wide array of streaming media platforms to offer access to the public to the fullest extent possible. You may call in to make a comment and you may also listen to this meeting by dialing 669-900-6833. Meeting ID is 8611078844 and then press the pound sign. We OTV staff have confirmed that this planning commission meeting is currently streaming successfully on Spectrum Channel 10 and online at weho.org slash wehotv. In addition, and as a courtesy, this meeting is also successfully streaming on the city's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash wehotv and on Roku, Apple TV, Fire TV, and Android TV. WeHoTV staff monitor this broadcast on all platforms throughout the meeting and will notify the planning commission secretary should broadcast disruptions arise. Please do not interrupt the live meeting by calling or texting the planning commissioners about difficulties viewing the meeting. Please understand that internet speeds, device reliability, third-party platform reliability, and individual or personal technical issues are out of the scope of this broadcast. If you are experiencing viewing difficulties while watching this live stream, please reload the page or visit weho.org slash wehotv to access our official live stream and to view a list of other available streaming options and a guide to troubleshoot your connection. If you continue to experience difficulties, you can also call 323-848-3151. Welcome everyone. I'm calling to order this meeting of the West Hollywood Planning Commission. This is a regularly scheduled meeting. It is Thursday, May 18th. And it looks like we're at 6.33 p.m. right now. We're going to get right down to business. <clears throat> I have asked uh, Commissioner Gregoire to lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. Thank you. Item three, uh, we have a new member of the Planning Commission to be sworn in this evening. Uh, I believe uh, Council Member Chelsea Byers will be administering the oath of office to newly appointed Planning Commissioner Mark Edwards. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. What an honor. All right, you can raise your right hand. Repeat after me. I, state your name. I, Mark R. Edwards, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear, that while serving in the office as a member of the Planning Commission, while serving in office as a member of the Planning Commission, of the City of West Hollywood, of the City of West Hollywood, that I will support and defend, I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the United States, and the Constitution of the State of California, and the Constitution of the State of California, that I will bear true faith and allegiance, I will bear true faith and allegiance to the Constitution of the United States, to the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the State of California, and the Constitution of the 
state of California. That I take this obligation freely. I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation. Without any mental reservation. Or purpose of evasion. Or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully. And I will well and faithfully. Discharge the duties upon which I'm about to enter. And discharge the duties of, upon I'm to enter. That's great. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Get up here where you belong. Welcome. Okay, we have a few more of these. Uh, this is going to get a little weird, but whatever. Uh, uh, Commissioner Carballero is also going to be sworn in this evening. Re-sworn in. Do we go up there? Yes. yes. Come on down. Let's keep this we'll be going, going one at a time. <laughs> Hello. All right, we're doing the same thing. I state your name. I, Rogerio Carvalero. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That while serving in the office. That while serving in the office. As a member of the Planning Commission. As a member of the Planning Commission. Of the City of West Hollywood. Of the City of West Hollywood. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. And the Constitution of the State of California. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. To the Constitution of the United States. To the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. And the Constitution of the State of California. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation. Without any mental reservation. Or purpose of evasion. Or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully. That I will well and faithfully. Discharge the duties. Discharge the duties. Upon which I'm about to enter. Upon which I'm about to enter. Congratulations. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I have so many honors tonight. I state your name. I, David Gregoire. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That while serving in the office. That while serving in the office. As a member of the Planning Commission. As a member of the Planning Commission. Of the City of West Hollywood. The City of West Hollywood. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. And the Constitution of the State of California. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. To the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. Constitution of the State of California. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation. Without any mental reservation. Or purpose of evasion. Or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully. And that I will and faithfully. Discharge the duties. Discharge the duties. Upon which I'm about to enter. Upon which I am about to enter. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. my turn. I'm going to call myself up. <laughs> Just checking to make sure no, okay, it's me again. Let's do this. Let's do this. I state your name. I, Stacy Jones. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That while serving in the office. That while serving in the office. As a member of the Planning Commission. As a member of the Planning Commission. Of the City of West Hollywood. Of the City of West Hollywood. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. And the Constitution of the State of California. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. That I will bear true faith and allegiance. To the Constitution of the United States. To the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of California. And the 
the Constitution of the State of California. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation. Without any mental reservation. Or purpose of evasion. Or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully. And that I will well and faithfully. Discharge the duties. Discharge the duties. Upon which I'm about to enter. Upon which I'm about to enter. Congratulations, Thank Chair you. Jones. Thank you. <laughs> We'll be doing a few more of those at our next meeting. Something for everybody to look forward to. Okay, roll call. Uh, David, will you please call roll for us? Uh, good evening, commissioners. Uh, Commissioner Meadows. Present. Commissioner Lombardi. Present. Commissioner Grigois. Present. Commissioner Edwards. Present. Commissioner Copeland. Present. C Commissioner Carvalero. Chair Jones. Here. And we have a quorum. Excellent. Uh, item six is approval of the agenda. Do I have any requests for changes or amendments to the agenda as it's printed? No? I move approval. Do I have a second? Second. Moved by Commissioner Gregoire, seconded by Commissioner Meadows. And the motion carries unanimously to approve the agenda as presented. Great, thank you. Item seven is approval of the minutes from our April 20th meeting. Do I have any uh, requests for changes? No, does anyone wanna move uh, the item? I'll move the item. Do I have a second? Second. There's a little bit of a lag, David, just letting you know we're not just blankly staring at our screen. <laughs> it was uh, moved by Commissioner Maddow, seconded by Commissioner Carvalero. It's not showing on screen. But... Oh, I believe, uh, just want to call out, I believe that Commissioner Edwards would need to abstain. Uh, thank you. And the motion passes to approve the minutes for April, 4, uh, April 20th, 2023 uh, by six ayes and Commissioner Edwards of abstaining from this vote. Great. Item eight is public comment. David, do we have any public speakers? Uh, we do, Chair. I have a few in council chambers tonight and we do, I believe, have two on the Zoom platform. Great. I just do want to make clear that this public comment portion at this part of the meeting and then again at the end of the meeting is for general comments only that do not pertain to any of the items on the agenda. If there is an agendized item that you'd like to speak on specifically, you can uh, amend your speaker slip to speak on that item when we have the public hearing for that item. Just to note, otherwise, please, let's get, let's get started. Okay, our first public speaker will be Sam Borelli, and he will be followed by Donnie Huang. Hello, Madam Chair and Commissioners. Sam Borelli, 23-year resident of the city of West Hollywood. I'm not here representing my organization, WHCHC, nor my commission, Human Services, AKA the heart of WeHo commissions. <laughs> I'm here to celebrate the swearing in of my friend, colleague, and brother, Mark R. Edwards. 
Mark is an excellent choice for the Planning Commission. I've long hoped that he would be here someday. He knows the city. He knows the community. He knows land use. He's been on the developer side of the table. He's been on the neighborhood side of the table. Mark is intelligent. Mark is thoughtful. Mark is empathetic. Mark is kind. Mark is fun and sometimes funny. <laughs> I've known Mark for almost 12 years. He ran my city council campaign in 2013. When we were both independent consultants, we worked on many projects together, including land use and community engagement. We were all but officially business partners for at least five of those years. We created and taught the We Lead Academy, sponsored by the West Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. To help get more community members engaged in the functioning of our city, we graduated approximately 23 people over three years. We may have also been known to frequent happy hour every other Friday at Kitchen 24, allegedly, until the pandemic hit. <clears throat> Most importantly, because this doesn't happen for everybody, he's been in my house and he's taken care of my dog. <laughs> WeHo's most adorable Frenchie. Okay, Rogerio. One of the most adorable Frenchies in West Hollywood. We come from very different backgrounds, but share a love of community and service. This man served his country in the United States Marines. I know that you too will find Mark to be an excellent partner as you do your work. Congratulations, brother. And as WeHo's own RuPaul will say, and don't F it up. <laughs> Enjoy your evening. My curfew soon approaches. Thank you, Sam. Our next speaker in council will be Danny, and then we will follow, uh, go into the Zoom platform. Good evening, honorable commission. Uh, my first time appearing for this honorable body, so I'm a little nervous. I just wanted to congratulate Commissioner Edwards on his appointment to the commission. Uh, he is a true progressive leader and a community advocate, and I wanted to congratulate our Chair Jones, Commissioner Calvert-Harrow, and Commissioner Gregoire on your reappointment to the Planning Commission. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Chair, that is our last public speaker in chambers. I'll turn it over to Joe for the Zoom platform. Yes, at this time we will have uh, Lynn Russell. Uh, go ahead and speak. Uh, please state your name and city of residence, and reminder to star six to unmute. Good evening, Lynn Russell, West Hollywood. Uh, good evening, Chairman Jones and fellow commissioners. Tonight I wish to address the topic of requests for continuance and the specific protocol of making requests for and granting of same. This has unnecessarily become a tricky subject when it needs not be. Personally, I have been successful in obtaining continuances and spectacularly unsuccessful resulting from a seemingly arbitrary measures utilized on behalf of the staff and on one occasion inappropriate interaction between a commissioner on HPC and a staff member. In each instance prior to my filing a formal request for continuance in writing I engaged in specific discussions as to the sequence of events necessary. The results were varied from staff ignoring the written request to instances okay, wherein a commissioner directly directed to respond missed the interval to respond prior to the adoption of the agenda and other concerns about how and when to do what and the legitimacy of even requesting and or granting a continuance. During the last 
uh, Planning Commission meeting, Commissioner Copeland legitimately so requested got, like, guidance right now. Okay. with proverbial double talk How do you say the first This is not helpful. Okay. The unfortunate okay. results of not you. respecting okay, we'll respect a request for continuance may lead to, one, onerous, expensive appeal by a private citizen, payment of fees, and or obtaining 50 to 100 signatures from the residents. Two, outright refusal by staff to acknowledge written requests by simply ignoring them. Three, obtaining legal opinions to ascertain the odds of a situation that likely could have been resolved through granting of a continuance. And fourth, one successful appeal was narrowly based on simple, specific procedural issues not understood or even respected by the city council hearing the appeal. They were unable to distinguish between defective procedure and the tragic result of defaced buildings, the subject, which had been nominated as a commercial historic resource. Although I had significant evidence that this was a purposeful defacement that could have been ascertained by the commissioners in reading the staff report, comprehending their options, and therefore I would not be in a position to argue um, this, uh, this matter, Thus, I made it a narrow appeal. Accuracy and timing are exceptionally important factors that apply to this matter, as well as nearly every factor worthy of your consideration. It becomes incumbent upon the commissioners that if there is a doubt about the completeness or accuracy of the request um, or grant, to obtain the necessary documents. Likewise, it seems publish and discuss a concise and concise set of protocols regarding the request to begin with. Dealing with a potential issue sooner than later avoids beleaguered proceedings of appeals, onerous responses from staff, which unfortunately put the innocent public in an unnecessary and expensive line okay. of fire that is very expensive for everyone, regardless of the outcome. Thank you so much for the extra time, David. At this time, we'd like to have the person at the ending 9751. Please state your name and state of residence, and remember to star six to unmute. Thank you. Jamie Francis Wendell, resident of West Hollywood, uh, south of Sunset Boulevard on Hainhurst Drive. I just wanted to uh, make a point. I, I do have intentions on speaking on other itemized uh, issues on the agenda, but I wanted to say that what I've noticed with the appeals process with going before the city council with the developers is that they are insufficiently providing affordable housing. And what they are doing is that they are mitigating and making allowances for something and then totally ignoring or possibly um, restricting or not even including certain housing when it comes to very low to low income housing. I've noticed that it's ridiculous when you hear projects approved before the planning commission and thereafter with the city council of, oh, we'll allow 10 units or five units of affordable housing and three are moderate and two is low income, but it's just insufficient with the housing crisis. And I just don't know how these projects are approved with little to no affordable housing. It is ridiculous. When you hear units of 180 market rate units and 10 affordable, that is unconscionable. That is ridiculous and unacceptable. And so these developers have to understand when you do build housing, or that it's approved or there's variances involved. And then you do have community protests depending on the neighborhood. However, there is no affordable housing on the west side. It took me 10 years or excuse me, eight years from living here 
in 18 years in LA to finally be approved of an affordable unit in a community corporation of West Hollywood housing unit, not a regular unit of a market rate building. And it's ridiculous. How long do I have to wait, 20 to 30 years in order to qualify? I mean, this is what I just find ridiculous and unacceptable. I like to live on the west side. I shouldn't be restricted to the east side. But that's the, the situation. And then you're an indefinite waiting list for affordable housing through the city. That's what I just find ridiculous. Those people living here have to wait several decades in order to qualify or be in the neighborhood of their choosing. And it shouldn't be that case. So I'd like to see the Planning Commission do a better job of enforcing it and making sure these developers have ample housing opportunities for everyone in every neighborhood of this city, not just the east side. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, sir. And Chair, that is our last public speaker on Zoom and in Chambers. We are all clear. Okay, great. Thank you. Again, if you didn't get an opportunity to speak and would like to, there will be another period at the end of the meeting. Uh, item 9 is our director's report. Thank you, Chair and members of the Commission. My name is John Keogh, the Director of Planning and Development Services Department. And first, I want to welcome everyone back being appointed and welcome Mark to the uh, Commission. So welcome, everybody. Um, first, I'll start off with some good news. At the end of April, the state certified our housing elements. So we now have a certified housing element. So that's really good news for us. Um, and the housing element has a lot of work product items in there. And so we are starting to work away on all those items. Next, I'd like to um, update the commission on what took place at council uh, last Monday. Last Monday, just earlier this week, uh, the appeal of 8555 Santa Monica Boulevard went to the council. The council you know, held the appeal hearing and ultimately the council denied the appeal and upheld the planning commission's approval on a five to zero vote. Um, some upcoming items for City Council that are, might be of interest to the Commission on their next meeting, which will be June 26th. Um, we're scheduled to have uh, the tall wall application that the Commission looked at, I think maybe the last meeting or meeting before last. We're also planning to have some updates on the Dockless Mobility Pilot Program and an update on the protected bike lanes. Um, so let's see, I think, I think that's all I had for tonight. There's any questions? Any questions for the director? I think you're off the hook. All right, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Item 10 is item from, items uh, from commissioners. Um, I'm gonna start to my left and work my way down. If nobody wants to say anything, you don't have to. I always think Kimberly's making a face and she's not. But if you wanna say something, please go ahead. That's what you told me last time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Chair. First, I'd, I'd like to congratulate uh, Commissioner Edwards on his appointment and look forward to meeting with you and uh, working with you and uh, our returning commissioners. I would like to uh, congratulate you as well and look forward to continuing to work with you. Um, a, a couple of things that have been weighing heavily on me uh, recently, if I could just briefly mention. Um, we've been getting a lot of uh, remarks and feedback from the public uh, over the phone, here in person, by email, um, as well as calling into council about insufficient noticing being received or not enough opportunities to weigh in publicly. So I'm just um, wondering how maybe this can be expanded and improved, whether that's adding different notification methods, 
and expanding the radius of noticing requirements or both, but perhaps there are areas that we can improve in. I mean, we recently we keep hearing uh, that what we're doing perhaps isn't working as well as it could be, but you know, I mean, wanna make sure how well are we listening to that. So that's been weighing on me quite a bit lately. Um, also, the last meeting we had an item that um, Commissioner Lombardi was told no, no sassy review was required, and I was told there was no neighborhood meeting required. Even though this was a big change from a, a CUP of 20 years to a new development agreement that was outside of some of the standards of that original uh, conditional use permit. So that amount of change, um, I still feel maybe should have re been required to have more input, especially in neighborhood meetings. So that's one more thing that still weighing heavily on me since our last meeting. Um, other than that, I just wanna say once again, welcome and uh, look forward to working with all of you for the first time or once again. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Anyone else to my left? No? Anyone to my right? Commissioner Matos. Yes, thank you, Chair. First of all, I just wanna welcome Commissioner Edwards uh, to joining this body. Uh, very excited to have you. I've gotten to know you uh, over some time and you're, I know that you're gonna be a great addition to this body and I'm very excited to have you here. Um, and then I wanna congratulate my colleagues to the left for getting reappointed. Um, yeah, I look forward to continuing service with you to the city and uh, I'm always available if uh, anything if I can be helpful. Um, next thing is I do wanna echo what Commissioner Copeland said, uh, is that we should be looking for maximum opportunity for public noticing and public meetings and different opportunities for the public to weigh in on these projects. Um, I think that you know if there's ever an opportunity for staff to bring in items that we can review the noticing requirements so we understand exactly what's happening. Um, and that there's a public forum for the public to understand how things are noticed and different methodologies, I think that would be very beneficial to this body. Other than that, looking forward to serve and continue serving with all of you. So, thank you. Great, anyone else? Uh, Commissioner Lombardi, please go ahead. Thank you, first of all, congratulations, Commissioner Edwards. I really look forward to collaborating with you and getting to know you better. And I also want to congratulate all the other commissioners that have been reappointed. It was very celebratory today. Definitely more fun than um, in Zoom world. So I liked that. And, um, and thanks for reinforcing some of my concerns from the last meeting. That's all. Great, thank you. Anyone else? I did want to say a couple of things. Um, one, I uh, would be remiss if I did not thank uh, Marquita Thomas uh, formerly Vice Chair Marquita Thomas for her service to commission. I loved working with her, loved sitting next to her. Um, she always had incredible questions and does the work. She's a super active community member. Um, and Marquita, you will be missed. Um, and thank you so much for your service. Um, I would also be remiss if I didn't welcome Mark Edwards to commission. Welcome, we're so happy to have you. Um, we're sitting pretty with seven member body up here again. It feels nice. Um, and I also wanted to congratulate uh, everyone who has been reappointed. Um, you know, I know it's hard to believe, I, this is now my eighth, I guess heading into my ninth year of service on commission and it's humbling and such a privilege and um, West Hollywood's the only place I've ever lived in California. I've lived here for almost 18 years. So um, it is truly my privilege and I'm really looking forward to doing the work with all of you. It was not, will not always be easy. Uh, it gets sticky and messy sometimes. It's kind of the nature of the work that we do, um, but I am uh, very much looking forward to it. I did want to address, uh, we have kind of a weird situation um, 
just I, that I wanted to kind of just put out there. We don't have a vice chair right now. I believe elections are going to take place on July 6th. I want to surface this for two reasons. One, it is the city's habit to ask the chair and vice chair from every commission to be on the city's pride float. And we don't, don't won't have a vice chair, uh, I don't think, appointed or elected uh, by consensus on the commission uh, before pride, which is the pride parades on, we hope pride parades on uh, Sunday, July 4th. So I'd like to ask if, uh, I don't even know if this is allowed, but I'm just gonna ask anyway, um, if we can maybe by consensus of the commission uh, ask if we can have a vice chair stand-in to be on the float, is that possible? Chair, I would say if, um, if someone wants to serve in that role, maybe that's the best way to do it if there are volunteers from the I feel like it's, I mean, it's really fun. I'm going to do it. So um, you'll get to get to hang out with me. Um, but I just want to make sure, I just, I want to have representation there from planning. And if somebody does want to do it, then I just want to give an opportunity to do that. Okay, I'll go to the next thing. So um, I also wanted to surface, not to be a total pain, but I'm going to be on vacation abroad at the election meeting on July 6th. So I don't know how that affects things. I'm sorry, I don't always mean to mess things up, but I'm gonna be out. I don't know if elections can proceed without me or how that needs to work, but I did wanna call that out now. I know we're more than a month out, but I just wanna make sure I'm giving we'll, due notice. We'll work with the planning department to determine the best way to okay. reformate it and okay. when those elections are. Okay, yeah. um, again, this is just items from commissioners, but does anybody wanna be on the float? I would be interested in serving as interim vice chair and being on this float. Okay. Is everybody, is this track? I, so I don't know protocol here. I, just... I think it's fine. Commissioner Matos will, wants to serve on the float, and I think that's fine without having to take okay. any other formal action. Okay. All right. Um, I think someone from the events team would need to... David, how should we handle that? Are you able to contact them and let them know? I'll get in, I'll get in touch with them okay. and, and... Fantastic. Okay, great. All right. Okay, item 11, consent calendar. There is none. So we're going to Zoom, not Zoom, I mean like with speed, not virtually, uh, go into our first public hearing, which is item 12A. This is a zone text amendment for parking and driveway standards. And I am going to hand off the floor to our staff. I believe will be Mr. Rick Abramson, our city architect. There we go. Good evening, Chair and Commissioners, to all those uh, reappointed and new. It's great to see a full body tonight. So uh, tonight we have. Uh, several uh, ZTAs before you, the first of which is dealing with parking and driveway standards in residential and commercial zoning districts. So a bit background on this item. Uh, a multitude of things sort of came together over a very short period of time. But what prompted this was the city council originally directed staff to develop a uh, closer look at multifamily standards, particularly what they called the R2 to R4 study. Um, so that item was specifically to look at um, a couple of things 
looking at green space permeability neighborhood scaled massing and driveway and parking standards these were particularly highlighted in the council's direction so we had been sort of gearing up to do that study and at the same time the city was awarded a state grant um, that was part of the implementation of SB 330 which uh, necessitates objective standards to be in place in order to apply uh, in new development so there was a whole series of criteria through that grant to convert especially some of our design guidelines or development guidelines into actual standards. Um, somewhat concurrent with that as well, uh, AB 2097 went into effect that also um, requires uh, municipalities to develop uh, objective zoning uh, and specifically talked about adding design standards for mixed use projects and also converting the uh, guidelines into objective standards. And then finally, the city council um, moved forward with the implementation portion of the climate action plan that had been adopted and has directed staff going forward to, uh, as much as possible, integrate some of the city's climate action goals into any newer um, standards that might be in place. So, there was sort of a confluence of all of these things, and tonight before you is uh, our best attempt to satisfy multiple goals. So in diving into especially the multifamily portion of the larger goals, um, it became pretty clear that it's, you know, it's an extensive task, and so staff felt it was best to divide it into phases and bring it before the Planning Commission in segments so it's easier for the public and the Commission and Council ultimately to uh, way what is being proposed. So tonight is just phase one of probably three or four phases that will be coming before you. This one specifically driveway and parking design. And we bring this forward first because it's really mostly technical. The majority of what's before you tonight is already in the code and it's just merely revisions and updates to make it more objective, adding diagrams, adding dimensions, adding language that specifies objective intent behind it. And so the goals and objectives um, really are to um, provide greater clarity and create objective standards uh, to reinforce intent. We hope this also helps to streamline. You know, that word gets thrown around quite a bit and those in the business often smirk at that <laughs> because oftentimes new standards are seemingly delaying things, but in reality, you know, our, our sense is that the more we can be clear about what is expected, if the applicant team, you know, does their homework, does their research up front, it should be a much quicker process because they have measurables now that they can move towards. Um, so in addition to dimensional requirements, we also wanted to really look at gr strategies for greater flexibility, especially with respect to parking and loading to add more options, more ways of integrating as much parking as possible, even if it may not necessarily be required through other provisions of state law, uh, when those who do want to uh, integrate parking on site, we wanted to really acknowledge the lot sizes of West Hollywood and, uh, and expand different ways that that could be accommodated. Um, you know, the state has put in parking reductions that really is beyond the local control if a uh, developer 
chooses to enact state provisions. Uh, and so we have to look forward to a time where there's going to be far fewer parking spaces in new development just overall. That's, that's the decisions that's been made. And so now how do we sort of nimbly shift to a new era and uh, understand that there's still going to be need to uh, receive goods and services and access goods and services. So that was also part of what's driving our recommendations this evening. Um, and so we're, we're looking ahead. We're trying to anticipate uh, the way things might be uh, moving forward. And we had a few things that were discussed at the long range subcommittee that we'll uh, get into tonight. Um, we did uh, a, a sort of unique type of outreach for this effort because it was exceedingly technical. Uh, the majority of it is dealing with stall widths and obstructions and overhead clearance and ramp slopes and, uh, you know, dimensional things. So it really, there wasn't a lot to uh, survey per se, but we did create a, a website, we did a, a citywide press release, and we invited public uh, feedback. Uh, and the way we did it was, here's an example, is we created a page that outlined an issue and some of the outcomes that would be um, potentially desirable, and then asked for any comments. And so on the left of the slide, you'll see an example of how this worked out. And what was really nice is it wasn't just a survey like, do you like this, yes or no? But we actually got comments. And um, uh, it wasn't many of them. <laughs> I think we actually had approximately 10, 10 commenters. But, uh, you know, as a methodology, I was really appreciative that those who did participate actually provided input and feedback, which was nice. Um, so here's another example. Uh, of the type of comments on the right that that um, we received. We also received general feedback, including things that were not really being looked at or before you tonight. For example, there was a comment about there should be a one-for-one -one parking ratio in any new development, um, and that's not before you tonight. We really did not look at parking ratios. I think those have already been uh, dealt with previously, and then, of course, the state laws also um, uh, provide other options beyond the local parking ratios. So that's, that's not on the table tonight. Um, okay, so moving forward. Um, Chair, we have about, I would say, 10 items that we wanted to highlight tonight. So is the preference that we go through all 10 and then get comments, or should we do one at a time? What would the commission like? Uh, in terms of the presentation? Um, I don't know if there will be comments on every one. I think um, I defer to my colleagues. I, I usually like to, to wait until the end, but if the you know, commission feels that it's uh, best, you know, most productive use of our time to ask, ask questions as they arise per item, I'm fine with that too. Okay with them going through all of them. And wait until the end? Yeah, wait until the end. Okay, okay. Okay, very good, thank you. All right, so as I said, we're, we're gonna highlight some of the, um, the primary uh, items that we thought there might be a, uh, of greater interest to look at in depth. So the first one is uh, no, uh, uh, how do I say this? It's, no, it's not something that's unfamiliar to the commission re, uh, dealing with driveway visibility. This was a topic that came up previously. Um, the previous 
way that driveway visibility was done was through a single diagram in the code. Uh, and it, it, uh, it was not very effective of reflecting real life. It um, was taking a center line of a driveway. So if you had a 20-foot wide driveway and the person was driving out to one side of the driveway or other, the way the visibility triangle was being applied was completely irrelevant because it didn't reflect the driver's eye and the actual vision of the sidewalk. So we also have conditions in West Hollywood where um, one could back out of the driveway as opposed to coming out uh, forward. And again, that visibility diagram was not reflective of that reality. So we looked at um, the best ways to go about it and we created some new diagrams with objective dimensional standards that apply to both moving out forward and backing out, and whether it's a sort of single-loaded, single-width driveway or a double-loaded, and we feel that these new objective standards will better reflect the actual condition and address any safety concerns um, for that. And the uh, uh, diagram in the code and the dimensions, I think, are um, hopefully very, very clear. Um, and this, you know, as I said, we looked at multiple different configurations, uh, both in commercial and residential zoning districts, wanted to look at when there's a driveway going underground, when there's a surface condition, when there's a building, you know, all the different scenarios that we regularly see in West Hollywood. Uh, and we feel that this now truly reflects the majority of the conditions that, that could come up uh, and is a big upgrade to what was in there previously. Uh, a second item is related to driveway entry gates. Again, this is something that has come up uh, in previous settings. Concerns about cars pulling up to a gate, stopping, delivering a pizza, whatever it is, leaving the car there, and that impacting the public right-of-way. Um, it is imperative that we keep our public right-of-ways fully accessible at all times. And so um, gates themselves are not a requirement. They're a preference in some cases, but they're not required. So the idea is that when uh, an applicant is interested in securing their driveway, that the best practice would be to set it back 17 feet, which would allow for the car to full, pull fully up off the sidewalk and maintain clearance. Uh, and this is just a general best practice citywide, regardless if it's commercial, residential, whether it's multifamily, single family, mixed, mixed use, doesn't matter. It's really just about um, ensuring that the sidewalk is not blocked through uh, a driveway condition. The next recommendation goes to that flexibility I mentioned earlier. So right now in the current code, Backing out of driveways is only permitted in single-family situations, and yet we have a number of smaller uh, multifamily parcels in which there's a triplex or fourplex on grade, and the maneuverability is such that it would help tremendously to allow uh, one or two more cars to back out onto the street, uh, and it's staff's position that sort of increasing the allowance of up to one space per unit um, would not create a hardship, especially in a, in a local street or alley condition. This would not be permitted in a major street or highway, but in a local condition, you're talking about six to eight 
backouts per day. I mean, it's, it's so minimal, it, you know, beyond one per hour on average. So it, it really would not, um, in our opinion, create a, a difficult condition for a neighborhood, but it would in many cases even allow for an additional unit, housing unit to be integrated on site because of the ability to back out in the garage configuration. So our recommendation is to sort of expand this beyond just single family and allow it up to the four units. Parking stalls and aisle dimensions um, has, to my knowledge, not really changed much since the adoption of the original zoning code. There's actually a handout on the right that's been around as long as I've been around in the city, which is a, a long time doing projects. Um, and it, it really was in need of some fresh thinking because it was a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, it, it had certain stall sizes uh, that were fixed regardless of the condition, whether it was, um, you know, parallel, uh, sort of mid-infill type of space or end condition or angled or what have you. And so we took a sort of deeper dive at the stall and aisle dimensions and particularly with respect to um, backup space and the drive aisle width. And I think staff felt strongly that the one size fits all of 26 feet for uh, backup space uh, really need revisited, revisiting. And in theory, um, the way we came down is that the wider the stall, the less space you need to back out. And so we've now proposed a revised uh, parking chart, which is no longer one size fits all. And it allows for many, many options that could reduce the backup space from 26 feet to 22 feet. And that four feet makes a huge difference, especially in these tighter lots. And so this sliding scale approach um, we feel really um, will help many of the uh, uh, applicants who struggle on these smaller, uh, smaller lots. So that's a recommendation as well. Um, we've also looked closely at obstructions and uh, the previous code was very limiting on ever having obstructions in um, parking spaces, but in looking at how buildings are built, they need shear walls, they need bearing walls, they need columns, they need um, certain things to hold up. And um, we felt it's important to provide objective standards for when those are integrated, how to ensure that uh, passengers and drivers can get in and out safely and still um, uh, provide for these obstructions to take place. So this is a newer section in the code, this is a newer chart and uh, we've identified how much in the front of the car and how much in the rear uh, that obstruction could happen and where, and being mindful of um, turning radii and other things so cars don't get dented and dinged, but uh, we feel that this is also gonna help tremendously with um, new development to provide for these obstructions to be allowed. Uh, end stall conditions are something that really wasn't handled uh, clearly in the previous version. Uh, and so, again, just to be safe uh, with an objective standard, we're now showing that uh, end stalls should be widened so that whether it's on the driver's side or passenger side, that you can safely get out if there's a wall next to the 
car on an end stall and this only would apply when there's an obstruction we're also encouraging greater offset back back up space dimension a in this diagram so that when you're backing out we see a lot of designs where there's just a wall that continues past the parking stall and the car itself can't even turn to then turn the wheel and proceed down the drive aisle so this this extension of the access aisle is recommended this is very common in most other cities it just wasn't in the West Hollywood code overhead projections is another area that we felt should be reconsidered it was something that was earlier on in the county we'll see a lot of buildings in West Hollywood that have overhead storage units in the West Hollywood code there's a 14-foot requirement right now that says that everything should be free and clear of obstructions for 14 feet we're frankly not sure where that comes from there's also an 8 foot 6 minimum right now in the code the standard is 8 foot 2 because that's a disability compliance minimum and we feel comfortable with 8 foot 2 as a as a limit and we also would like to encourage greater flexibility of integrating outdoor storage exterior storage is a requirement of the zoning code that's not changing and so oftentimes applicants are having to create giant storage rooms in the parking garage that could take out some parking spaces so by allowing for overhead it again frees up the ability when provided to provide more parking so we're we're looking at some new provisions that take into account ducting piping all kinds of other fire sprinklers anything that would be suspended from ceilings making sure there's a minimum eight foot to clearance on the pathway to a disabled parking stall as part of a minimum clearance and then over the parking stalls themselves allowing that to drop down to seven foot six and then over the hood of a car have that storage or other overhead component the question was raised you know what happens if someone backs in because most parking standards are designed for people to go ahead in but we know that that's not necessarily how people use parking stalls so we tried to be mindful of that as well in developing the the overhead standard but there would be some additional provisions in terms of signage to warn anybody who backs in that you know that it wasn't designed for that purpose another thing that came up at the long-range subcommittee that I thought was I think very forward-thinking dealt with compact spaces so currently compact parking is permitted in commercial zoning districts but in residential districts the language reads that it's at the discretion of the director can consider it and so I think there was interest in finding ways at the local level that more affordable housing could be encouraged and so the staff recommendation is to open it up to compact parking in residential zoning districts where housing is going to be integrated 
but to use it more as a uh, carrot, so to speak, and say that if there's a minimum of 25% of the total units, um, that compact parking may be used. Um, this is you know, a concept that I think is worthy of discussion and something that was well received at the long range uh, discussion. Uh, tandem parking, which is, which is permitted in residential and commercial currently, uh, just needed a little bit of cleanup. Um, I think the commission has discussed at length in previous projects that there's been some challenges with tandem parking and staging and valet and other things associated with it. And so staff has put in some recommendations that call for identified staging areas when there is tandem, uh, limiting the amount of stacking of cars to two spaces in residential and three in commercial when there's drive aisles on both sides. Uh, it's also clarifying that uh, staging areas are not parking spaces for purposes of satisfying required number of parking, because that, that has come up in the past, so now there's an objective standard that is clear and uh, um, on point there with respect to tandem. So again, we can get into greater depth on these if you'd like to dive deeper, but that would be a new um, way of looking at tandem. So these diagrams sort of show the, the staging areas that would be acceptable, whether it be um, in the drive aisle that's widened or uh, opposite the tandem where you could pull back and have car number one tuck away. That's actually a good strategy in uh, residential projects, whereas the one below could work better in commercial projects, but I think it would work either way, just depending on um, whether it's mixed use or a large-scale re residential or a small-scale project. But I think that's the overall theory in this case. So we've tried to account for um, valet operations and um, clarity with how tandem parking, when it's applied, works best. Um. Yes. Can you go back to that slide just really quickly? I just want to be clear. It, the third bullet says valet staging areas and drive aisles shall be considered parking stalls. No, that should have been shall, shall not. not. Thank you. Okay. That's a typo. I just want to make sure. Thank you, Chair. Yeah, thanks. I'll have to check the, the resolution text. I think hopefully that was just a typo on the slide and not in the resolution. Yeah, I think it's fine there. I'll check, but I okay. wanted to call that out. Thank you. With respect to uh, mechanical parking, uh, this has been uh, something that, uh, you know, has been well received to allow for uh, lifts, but there were, there were not standards that take into account the size of the equipment. And so what's happened is we've had some applicants that were trying to do multiple lifts in eight foot six stalls, which resulted in an inability to get out of the car and get to a drive aisle, to walk to a drive aisle. Uh, and so we wanted to uh, clarify that and make sure that the width in any situation where lifts would be used would take into account the actual superstructure of the lift mechanism itself and make sure that um, there's enough uh, mobility and maneuverability in and around these lifts. And then uh, another area that uh, was had a nice discussion at the long-range planning subcommittee dealt with this 
future that we're facing with fewer parking spaces but still with the need to receive goods and services and so the thought was that if parking is not provided that there still be a place on site that would allow for service providers and delivery individuals delivering items to have a place to offload say a caregiver needed to bring drop medicine to somebody there'd be all kinds of scenarios where it would be useful to have a place on site that's not a parking space but it's just an area where they could pull up and service the building in some way and so this was our sort of creative attempt at anticipating a future where there's gonna be fewer and fewer parking spaces per se for individuals on site and so the recommendation is to look at what we're calling a service and delivery area and that would be a striped area somewhere integrated into the parking lot we're proposing it being on a sliding scale so that as the units increase the size of this increases so sometimes you might need you know enough areas for two or three vehicles or vans or whatever it may be to pull up and so that was our recommended approach but you'll notice that we don't have like stall widths or anything per se it's it's just a square footage area and not intended to be a permanent space dedicated space but more of a flex area then to close there were two other items that were discussed at the long-range subcommittee meeting that I think staff felt were great ideas but probably need a little bit more direction from council and future study the first has to do with car sharing and car sharing is currently a topic in the code but it's it's in there as a means to get a parking reduction but parking reductions are already granted under other mechanisms so it's not so applicable to that anymore but the thought was if you know a hundred percent affordable building or other buildings are not having any parking at the developers election that what would be the way to ensure that residents have access to goods and services and so one thought was that there could be either car sharing on site where there's actually spaces set aside for residents to check out a car for two hours if they need to go pick something up and the other possibility would be a more residential or neighborhood car sharing program so there's a couple of concepts that could be explored but there are greater issues with making sure there would be enough local service providers that could do something like this you know how how maintenance and insurance would be handled and so I think it would require a deeper dive so our recommendation at this point is is to not include it in this update but if the Commission feels it's a good idea that we could go to the City Council with a recommendation to actually explore this under a separate initiative if that's something of interest and then finally a similar 
comment uh, or, or uh, discussion came up around bicycles themselves because the, the current code provides for bicycle storage and bicycle racks, but um, you know, we're finding that if we look at most of the buildings that are being built, there really aren't too many bicycles that are actually in those racks or in those storage. And um, there's a greater likelihood that we're gonna increase alternatives for mobility and to you know, help people transition to moving out of their cars if there were things closer to them to use, like bicycles or other devices. And so, um, you know, this is something, again, that probably needs greater exploration, but the discussion at the Long Range Subcommittee was, um, does it make sense to actually require that a developer put in a certain ratio of bicycles per bicycle rack that could be used by the residents of the building, um, especially for equity considerations, if it's um, lower income individuals who can't afford to purchase a bike, uh, you know, is that something that's worth uh, looking at uh, on a ratio basis? So, again, if the commission feels that that's something that's worth uh, exploring on a separate uh, track, we're happy to bring that forward as well. Uh, and then finally, in closing, we had a few um, uh, um, edits that I wanted to read into the record for the commissioners uh, just to clarify a couple of the standards. So on page seven of 58 in your resolution, there's uh, an item section 1928030C as in cat, number three. And we'd like to add the word required at the beginning of the sentence in front of the word parking to say required parking loading and service and delivery areas shall not be allowed in any required front setback except in single family dwellings and duplexes, comma, where, and then add the word excess parking is permitted upon a, et cetera, et cetera. So add the word required and add the word excess. The intent with this is that um, at the entitlement stage that uh, staff believes that the applicant should show in the entitlement how they're accommodating the required parking. But if after the project is built and somebody pulls up into the front yard, they're not gonna get cited. It's, it's not an issue of citation or uh, actual um, enforcement. It's just to ensure that applicants are not satisfying required parking in a front yard. So that's the reason for that clarification. Um, the second one would be on uh, page 24 of 58, 19.28.090, letter A, number one. And we would like to strike in number, I'm sorry, in number two of where it talks about the conditions. Um, number two says vehicles must park in a garage, carport, or other permanent parking location, and we'd like to strike that is not located in the front yard setback. So that makes it parallel with the previous um, language that we just read into the record, so they match. On page 
31. Section 1928.090, letter B as in boy, number three. There's a chart that in table 3-16 vertical clearances, um, the letter C was mistyped. And then finally, another cleanup, um, page 27, section 1928.090, letter B, number one, table 3-13, uh, the minimum stall length for compact would be 16 feet, zero inches. Right now it just says 16 feet, so we just like to add dash zero inches just to make it um, conform with all the other dimensions in the chart. And with that, I am going to close the presentation and happy to take questions. Thank you, Chair. Any questions? Great, thank you. Do we have any questions for uh, Rick Abramson at this time? Commissioner Matos? Yeah. Thank you, Chair Jones. Uh, thank you, Rick, for the presentation. I have a couple of questions, so if you could just bear with me. Um, when we're looking at this ordinance, uh, the proposed resolution, PC 2315-15, I'm looking at page five, section 1928.020, applicability. Um, I'm seeing that there's language in here that states, and I quote, adherence to bicycle parking and support standards are required for one, all new multifamily residential and mixed use buildings or buildings of, with 5,000 square feet of commercial space expansion or two, expansion of existing non-residential structures by more than 5,000 square feet, and three, expansion of existing residential structures by two or more units. A um, Couple things, um, as you know, state law uh, and the legislature recently moved to make uh, accessory dwelling units and junior accessory dwelling units um, essentially by right, meaning that if you're in an R1 or an R2, you're able to tack on an additional two units, um, and that is supposed to be without any type of um, disincentive, um, essentially making it by right. My concern is that the existing language, specifically under number three in this section, when it's saying two or more units, if I own a single family home in an R1 zone, and I'm adding two units, an ADU and a JADU, does this now make me subject to new standards that otherwise wouldn't be permitted by state law and in direct conflict with our ability to increase our housing stock. And then second question is when we're looking at number one, it says all new multifamily residential and mixed use buildings. All new multifamily residential. When you look at these same type of question, if we change number three and we look at number one, does that still keep that same burden and disincentive to adding additional units onto a property as permitted by state law with ADU and JADU. That's my concern. Could you address that for us? Absolutely. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, I'll start with the intent, and then I'm going to turn it over to our city attorney to address the ADU portion. So the intent of the number three expansion of existing residential structures is really more when we have a, an existing building, say it's 10 units, and they come in and want to expand by two units, that it would just trigger um, a bicycle space. That's, that's all that it's really saying. Um, the idea is that um, we're looking for any opportunity to integrate 
bicycles into multifamily developments. And so that's just a threshold that would trigger that. Um, at least that's the intent. Uh, as far as the ADUs, I'll turn it over to our city attorney to get into that. Sure, thank you, Rick. So, uh, Commissioner Matos, with respect to ADUs or JADUs, I think it's a really good point. They are essentially a buy right over the counter approval. Um, but I don't think it impacts uh, O2O in this ordinance because uh, under state ADU law, the standards applicable to ADUs or JADUs have to live within the four corners of that ordinance. So, we have a separate standalone ordinance, and all the standards applicable to ADUs or JADUs. Uh, would be within that chapter and, and uh, without a cross-reference. So um, that would be contained sort of within its own section and wouldn't impact or be uh, pertinent to the applicability of these standards. Could you reference that section in the West Hollywood Municipal Code for me that actually <laughs> defines the ADU and JADU? Sure, stuff? yes. Yeah. So I believe, let's see, I think we have... Um, I think we have within our definitions under the zoning ordinance a reference to accessory dwelling units that cites to 1936.310. So that includes residential uses and the specific standards applicable to ADUs and JADUs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think my concern is that the way that this ordinance or the resolution before us, the zone tax amendment before us, um, is worded it could be inferred that there is being an additional standard that's being implemented or projected upon ADU and JADU additions, given that if you're doing both, you're adding two additional units and therefore you would fall under the two or more units category um, in applicability. So my concern is that, and maybe we could look for opportunities to address that, um, especially if it's referenced somewhere else in code, um, so it's less confusing. Sure. Uh, one other point I want to add to that, just on the applicability language, is the the uh, revised language starts to with a caveat to say to the extent permitted by state law. So with respect to ADUs. And I think it's a good point because there's other sort of over-the-counter approvals um, for, you know, uh, 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 urban lot splits and other types of projects that involve residential units. Um, but I think the, the way our code uh, is drafted is those sort of ministerial or over-the-counter approvals are subject to those state laws and live sort of elsewhere um, within, within the code. And in the case, again, of ADUs and JADUs, it would be sort of specific for someone that came in and wanted to build one that they would be subject to the, the specific component of the zoning code that dealt with that over-the-counter approval. Yeah, okay. I'm glad that's our intent. I think it's just, there's a lack of clarity in the language as it currently is written in the applicability category. Um, couple other questions and then I'll move on. Um, with regard to the public comment period, you engaged in um, a survey, was there, how was that survey sent out to residents? Uh, it was the, well, it wasn't really a survey. I think what we did was we did a press release soliciting feedback and input and comments from those who might be interested in weighing in. So it was, it was done as a press release citywide 
and then we created a website and directed people to that website. Okay, was there a public meeting held for that? A public meeting regarding what? The proposed zone text amendment that we're looking at right now. No, I think as I said earlier, it was, these are largely technical, so we wouldn't have a public meeting to discuss technical dimensional things because there's no, like it would be awkward to ask, do you think a ramp slope should be 18% or 20% or mm -hmm. should the overhead clearance be eight foot three or eight foot two or should the stall width, you know, be eight foot six or eight foot seven. Um, so I think the majority of what was in here was dimensional and just turning what was already into the code in practice for the last 30 plus years into just more objective language. Um, and as I mentioned, the only new things that uh, were introduced were um, the um, reservoir and um, what was the other one? The compact stall. And the visibility triangle, correct? No, that exists in the code. We were just clarifying dimensions. Okay. Yeah. On that note, let me ask you this. In the resolution, does the reservoir, also known as the 17-foot setback for the gate, mm -hmm. right, is that applied only to multifamily, resident, uh, multifamily residential and commercial, or is that across the board? The way it is currently across all zones. Uh, let me get you the exact language, but I think it specifically talks about um, multifamily residential and mixed use. But let me get the exact language. Page 25. We could come back to that, but essentially my question to staff would be, what, where is the applicability in those realms? And the reason that I'm asking that is, if we're doing this as applicable to R1 and R2 and lower density residential zones, then perhaps public comment should have been more available. Yeah, Commissioner, the, app, the um, language is to prevent vehicular queuing in pedestrian areas for driveways in residential, multifamily, and commercial districts. Mm -hmm. So it does not refer to single-family residential. Good to know. And does the visibility triangle section of this document also in the same vein? with only applying to multifamily residential and commercial districts? No, the visibility triangle is a relationship between the driver and the sidewalk. It's mm -hmm. independent of any no. land use, zoning district, or anything else. It's just, it's, it's a citywide um, standard to protect public safety at the sidewalk. Got it, okay, thank you, mm -hmm. that's it. And if, if I can add just a little bit to um, of um, the uh, public meetings <clears throat> comment, um, just because as is typical with most um, zone text amendments that are sort of applicable citywide, 
um, our code requirement is to provide a newspaper notice, um, you know, an advertisement, um, notifying folks that there is going to be a public hearing regarding a zone text amendment, um, that there are uh, materials available for them to review um, uh, at City Hall if they'd like to provide comment or feedback, and there's an invitation for them to come to the Planning Commission meeting. Um, so along with that newspaper notice, we also post um, the information online um, through our um, you know, cable TV channels and then through all of our social media um, outlets. So <clears throat> for most of the citywide um, uh, you know, impact ZTAs like this one, which most are, um, that is sort of like the, the code requirement um, advertising that we do um, and typically is where we get most of the engagement um, for, for most of the zone text amendments. Um, that, that we bring forth. And I would add that we're, we are mindful of uh, the Commission and Council's interest in doing uh, extended outreach when possible. And I think our, our intent for these next segments that are site design standards, building standards, things that uh, public input would be valuable and not, it's not technical, um, uh, you know, I think that's critical. So our, our intent on these next segments will to be a, have a more um, robust outreach and noticing for those segments going forward. Commissioner Caballero, please go ahead. Thank you, Chair Jones. Rick, a couple of questions. Um, in your presentation, you met, mentioned that the city's goal is to require the gate setback. Is that so it could apply to single family, it could apply to multifamily because it's something that the, it's desirable in the city to have that reservoir before, before a gate. So if, if it applied or you could do it, the city would recommend it in a potential situation where it's single family? Yes, yeah, so I think our, our goal is to uh, provide every opportunity to avoid having cars on the sidewalk. That's the goal. Um, so in single family, the, as the text is currently written, it did not um, identify single family. But if that's something that the commission feels should be added to the direction and include that, um, I think that's something we, we could look at. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I... I liked that. I liked what you said during the presentation. It's the city's intent to have that be a safety uh, precaution. So, yeah, I, I like the idea of putting that in place, and also the visibility triangle. If you can apply it, why wouldn't we apply it? But it would be dealt with on. It would be dealt with on a case by case basis, depending on applicability. Right. Well, the visibility triangle applies everywhere. So it's again, it's not about the land use or the zoning, it's about the relationship of the car coming out of a driveway regardless of where it's coming from and the sidewalk. That's, uh, so that's sort of an independent uh, okay. focus yeah. from, from the land use. Okay, great. The other thing too uh, that jumped out at me because we're trying to come up with objective standards was on page 41 of 58, um, item B1. And this one kind of jumped out at me because, you know, there's so many ways to interpret this. Parking structures visible from street frontages shall be designed to be compatible with the architectural character and quality of adjacent buildings and shall not adversely impact abutting pedestrian sidewalks. I mean, the architectural character part is, it seems so broad 
Because if it's, say, a Spanish-looking building or a Tudor-looking building, and we follow Secretary of Interior's sort of standards of having something be um, contrasting, and somebody kind of feels that it should be the opposite, it, that, doesn't, that one didn't feel very objective. And I focused on that because we focused on that on the West Hollywood West discussion, and yeah. it's come up several times in design review. So all I ask is that maybe we reconsider that, that wording or come up with some way of making that more specific, because that seemed, of all the things that I read, it seemed the most vague. Yeah, I think, Commissioner, that's a really good point. I, you know, the, the, this particular effort was really more on uh, dimensional and objective standards on the technical side. And as I mentioned, we're gonna be coming back with other segments of the R2 to R4 study. And so one of those segments is gonna be building design and the parking structures, uh, kind of falls into that because it's it's a, a building, a structure. Okay. And so, yes, we do need to address that because right now that um, language that deals with compatibility would not be acceptable under oh, so state this, law. This so. might be addressed in phase B or phase exactly. C. Exactly, we will address it, it's just not in this So we're just section. focused on the ones that you presented, not this entire exhibit. Yeah, the that whole section was very long and uh, yeah, we really wanted to focus on the things that were gonna be most important to put in place to help applicants right now with mobility, maneuverability, and clarity. Um, and we will come back on this one. And, um, and I, frankly, right now, that isn't even enforceable uh, if it's a housing project. Yeah. So it wouldn't even be. Okay, applied. so I didn't understand that when, when I went through our paperwork. It's like, it just felt like there was so, the 58 pages, yeah, 58 pages was so dense and there's so many parts of it. So yeah. we're really only looking at the pieces that you presented today and those will move forward to city council or those will, you'll have revisions and they'll come back to PC or? Uh, well, depending on the discussion tonight, we'd, we'd like to move it forward to the city council and adopt this first part one and then get to work on part two and part three. Okay. So in these 58 pages, it exists part one, part two, part three. No, no, no. This is just the parking and driveway standards of the entire code. So next time we come back, for example, site design, we're going to be looking at um, general development standards, landscape standards, surface parking standards. There's going to be a number of different sections of the code. This was just one section of the code. Yeah. So the other ones are going to even be more complex. Okay, great, thank you. Commissioner mm -hmm. Lombardi. Thank you. Thank you, Rick, for your thoughtful and detailed explanation through this lengthy code. I appreciate it. I have just a couple of questions here. Um, a couple of really quick ones that I think will be easy. Um, first one, I was just wondering, on page 13 of 58, where there's reference to live, work, and parking. It looks like it's applying toward the residential portion on projects. I just wanted to make sure that aligns. I think that's because of the updates that we've made to the definitions of live, live work, but is there any, is that correct? Yeah, so live, work is, is really more of a cleanup. Um, live, work is a, was appearing in two places in the code. It was appearing in the residential chart and the commercial chart. Um, and it had different parking standards 
whether it was in the residential section or the commercial section. But in theory, it's the same unit, whether it's located in a residential zone or a commercial zone. And so it didn't make sense as to why there would be a different parking ratio or parking standard. And so um, the uh, recommendation was to uh, put it in the residential code because live work is a residential occupancy and have one standard for it so it avoids confusion both for the public and the applicants. So that's the reason for that cleanup. Okay, thank you. And one of the reasons I asked that question was because in another portion of this code, there's a note that there needs to be a separation between residential parking and commercial parking. So the live work parking and parking requirements would be on that residential side. Okay. That's the correct. Ones, the one stall yes. per unit. It, uh, a live work unit is considered a, a residential unit. So if it was in a mixed use building, it should be with the residential units. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And then on page 25, this may be my printer. I'm not sure, but I'm looking at the diagram and there's a required gate operation diagram. I think a lot of your new diagrams are, are really clear. So thank you. This one, at first glance, I got confused with which one was correct and not correct and where the um, where the driveway, well, where the street was. So I don't know if that's just me or <laughs> if others may get confused. It's, it, it's a good point. It's a carryover diagram from the existing code. Okay. And I, I'm almost wondering if we um, just, com you know, combined with figure 312 and just, we'll, we'll have to clean that up. Okay. Because it's, it's really just about doors, uh, gate swings. Yeah. And, I yeah, mean, even if you just antiquated. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, I looked like it was a carryover compared to the other graphics. Yeah. And then on, um, let's see, page, page 30. So this maybe dovetails a little bit into legal question. I just wanted to make sure, not my strengths here, um, the definition. So if we're looking at page 30 under B, the second paragraph where it says affordable dwelling units, which is not capitalized. I just wanted to make sure there's no need for clarity there. Um, for instance, a rent controlled unit would not be affordable, I believe, since we're referencing a ratio. Or is it, is it clear and enough in your opinion? Uh, Commissioner Lombardi, I think, uh, I don't know if Rick can speak to intent in terms of having a 25% total unit count set aside for affordable dwelling units. I would assume the intent there, and we can look to make sure the definition uh, suits this uh, purpose, would be uh, deed restricted affordable. Um, and uh, if Rick can speak to that, I think we can look at if there's something that we need that makes that more clear. Yeah, I think the intent was to bring it in alignment with all other provisions for affordable housing. So whatever language that needs to make it parallel is what it should be. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. If you can look at that yeah. just to make sure that there's no confusion or anyone, you know, taking advantage of that definition as opposed to what the intent was. And then related to that, this is maybe a more tricky question, but because so many projects 
move forward and they have concessions and waivers, what does that mean when we're uh, setting in place a, a percentage that may be an allowance to have some benefits versus if a project were to simply ask for that as a waiver or concession instead? Uh, it's a good question. I think uh, we we do see that often, certainly at the Planning Commission level. I think with respect to density bonus projects and concessions and waivers, uh, the, the scope of what is permissible in that, although it changes, is pretty broad. So I don't know that there's sort of a text uh, change we could make that could kind of distinguish sort of what is uh, applicable or what could be sought. I think Rick mentioned off the top AB 2097, I think we're seeing a lot of state laws that will continue to impact these parking uh, requirements at large. And so the ordinance has been prepared sort of to contemplate that, uh, you know, state law is going to be in effect and, and may continue to change sort of the applicability of these standards on a case-by-case -case basis to certain housing projects. I guess the other way to look at it maybe conceivably is this allowing a project to not use, to take advantage of that allowance and not apply it toward a concession or waiver that they could use towards something else? So maybe there still is an advantage there, if that makes sense. A project could say, well, I've got this. I was going to ask for a concession or waiver, but I don't need to, so I'll use that towards something else. Uh, well, the, the concession piece has a set number that the applicant can ask for. The waiver is a bit broader. They can ask for an unlimited number of waivers if they apply uh, and are eligible under, under state density bonus law. So I don't think it would impact sort of the, the menu or package that an applicant was seeking, although certainly you know, if they have a set number of concessions and one was going to be a parking restriction that, that otherwise applies, they could uh, avoid seeking that if they otherwise are consistent with the current standard. Okay. Perhaps it streamlines that process, though, and that they wouldn't need to ask for it. It would be kind of spelled out for them. And, and that's a good point, Commissioner Lombardi. To, to go back to AB 2097, I think the state legislature is bringing in additional um, parking reductions applicable to qualifying residential projects. So I think that will be true more broadly to a number of, of qualifying projects that may be exempt from these otherwise applicable standards. Okay, thank you. And then one last question, just to make sure that it's um, clear for me as we proceed forward tonight. With regards to car sharing and bicycle um, allowances or recommendations uh, to the city council, at the moment, you're just saying, consider if we want to include something. There's no, right, that's just something we could consider discussing today, but at the moment there's, because I didn't see anything specific on that. Okay. Right, I think, whoops. Uh, at the Long Range Subcommittee discussion, uh, both of those topics were raised. There was interest amongst those commissioners to bring it forward as part of this effort. In diving deeper, we agreed. We think it's a great idea, but that there are a lot of logistics and other things that could hold this up for a long time, and it's it's not you know urgent. But uh, if the full commission felt like this is a good idea and you'd like to see it explored, then our recommendation to you is to make a recommendation to the city council that you would like to see it explored, um, or you think it has merit for them to consider. Okay, thank you. That's my last question. Great, thank you. 
Questions on this side? Questions on this side? Okay. So we will move into the public comment portion of the hearing now. David, do we have any public speakers? Chair, I have no public speakers on this item in chambers, and we have no public speakers on Zoom. We are all clear. No, we do have one. We do have one on Zoom. Okay. Thank you. Yes, a uh, person that has a uh, ad number of 9751, uh, please state your name and your city of residence, and remember to star six to unmute. Yes, thank you. Uh, Jamie Francis Wendell, uh, West Hollywood, probably a resident. I just wanted to say that I did receive notifications from the city, um, all three letters, and I want to speak on all three itemized agenda, you know, items on the agenda. And so I do appreciate the city doing that. Um, I did want to talk about um, the situation when it comes to pedestrian safety in regards to this. I understand that they were speaking about, you know, parking. Um, uh, limitations with certain uh, aspects of pushing it, you know, beyond the sidewalk, which I really wanted to emphasize public safety. As someone who's lived in West Hollywood, I do not own a car. I actually have medical condition that prevents me from driving. Um, and so it is vital. That's why I live in the city because of the walkability, but it's becoming more onerous and more uh, difficult with the um, advances of these electric scooters and a lot of these people on skateboards. Um, and, and also drivers that are distracted or impatient. Um, and, you know, if you look at Sunset Boulevard, I live, you know, slightly below it. And every uh, construction phase that was going on across Sunset Boulevard, and I'm just talking about the neighborhood I live in, um, I have to be very aware of me crossing, even me having the right of way because of the side parking lot entrances and exits. Uh, people do not observe and are very impatient, and they will just speed and cut people off into the street uh, from the complexes. And so I just wanted to emphasize, um, you know, that uh, the Planning Commission should uh, be aware that if these developments do happen, that you have to have sensors and alarms. I know that a lot of buildings do that alert me as a pedestrian. And do the drivers give me the right of way? No. Majority of the time, no. Or then you have these electric scooters, and I'm trying to speak on behalf of some of those others who may not be, uh, who are on foot or don't have any type of capacity to alert drivers that they're crossing or walking in front of them. And so I just want this to be aware that, um, you know, there's fatalities and a lot of injuries that happen on the street, um, but with uh, viewing being obstructed because of the building, as well as, you know, vegetation and trees and bushes and so forth, I just want to know that I give the right of way because I'm on the sidewalk and I have to give the right of way to people exiting and entering complexes and these scooters and these skateboarders and people who are on bicycles, they belong in the street. I am on the sidewalk. I have the right of way. And people have to understand that. And yet in West Hollywood, it's becoming notorious. So there has to be sensors, alarms, some kind of alert, even buttons to maybe uh, outside of the parking structures or the building to alert that a walker is about to enter or cross the path or the sidewalk to let drivers know if they're coming up ramps or, you know, at least from seat level, they can see me, but they shouldn't have the right to cut me off because of a signal or because they're impatient. And that goes with gym owners, uh, gym goers. So I just want that to be aware. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, sir. And Chair, that is our last public speaker for this item. Okay, great. 
Um, so I'm going to go ahead and close the. Can you clarify? Because I know that there was a special rule about this last time. Thank you, Chair Jones. Yes, I would say uh, the the action would be to close the public, public comment, comment portion, portion of the, of public, the public hearing. hearing. Okay, great. All right. Well, I'm going to close the public comment portion of the public hearing. If we need to reopen it, we can. Um, but we can move into deliberation now. Uh, who would like to begin? Commissioner Matos, please go ahead. Thank you, Chair Jones. Um, so, you know, when I look at this, there's a couple of things that are coming to mind. Um, the first of all, there is, I do have a big concern about how the um, page five um, applicability section is worded. I think that it matters because we want to ensure that there's not even a perceived uh, disincentive for someone exercising their ability to add an ADU or JADU to their property. I did review the part of city code that staff provided, um, specifically 1936.310. It is the outline and definition of ADU and JADU and basically reinstates um, that they are allowed uh, via ministerial approval. Um, but, you know, I think that it's important if, that if we do consider this tonight, that the applicability portion of this resolution be amended to ensure that we are calling out specifically that the addition of a JDU or an ADU to a property does not trigger these new requirements for bicycle parking and support facility standards. The idea is, again, just to make sure that we're, as a city, not contradicting state law in any way, and that people know that if they are going to add one of those facilities, they are not subject to this law. So I think that if we're going to move forward, we need to consider language that references the section of code that says, you know, the West Hollywood Municipal Code defined ADU and JADU 1936-310 does not count towards the unit allotment for additions that require these new standards. So that's one thing. The other thing that I'm really curious about, and I'd love to get my colleagues' feedback on, is um, certain parts of this ordinance do apply across the board. Um, so it's not just multifamily um, residential, it's not just commercial, it's across the board, R1 to R4, and then all of the commercial zonings uh, throughout the city. My concern is that when we're looking at this resolution specifically, as stated you know, by the city council and in the staff report, the whole reason that we're here considering this before us is to look at standards for multifamily residential and to look at mixed use project standards. That is literally outlined as why we're doing this. So my concern is that if we're adding new requirements to developments, especially in R1 and R2 across the board, and there's no adequate, or there is an inadequate public comment period or public noticing, um, we may miss the opportunity to have residents be looped into this discussion, especially given that there are parts of this that would 
apply to R1 and R2. So, I mean, those are my only thoughts, um, but just to put everyone where I'm at, I feel very strongly about the needed language for clarity in the applicability section. Um, we need to ensure that we're not enacting anything that could even be perceived as um, contradictory to state law and by right approvals of JADUs and ADUs. That's a fair point. I do want to call out that in the section just before that, 1928.010 purpose, it does state that there's an addition that says that to the extent that state law conflicts with the requirements of this chapter, state law will control. So I guess what I would be concerned about is just like there are going to be a lot of things in this that may be overridden by another part of state law or by the code. And I don't know. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me. I just, to me, this doesn't say like you can't build, you can't have, you know, an ADU or JADU. I, again, that's just the new portion that's written just above it, but I don't know that we would need to change or condition the applicability to further clarify if it's just above in that section of purpose. Yeah, no, I understand that. What I'm looking at, just for the clarity, it just doesn't call out ADU and JADU specifically, but if you look at number three, expansion of existing residential structures by two or more units. That means if someone is adding two units to their property, they could easily perceive that an ADU and a JADU would trigger this new requirement. And that's what my concern is. I understand that the reference to state law, but I have a general thought that um, code, especially municipal code, should be understandable by all, not just people who understand what the state law requirement is. So if it's not explicitly stated, then I don't understand how someone who doesn't know the nuance of state law and ADU and JADU by right would infer that their ability to add those units to their property is not interfered with with this document. That's my uh, big thought on that. Feels like, like you want to say something. <laughs> um, I agree that it's important to be clear with intent. Um, and, you know, the practicality of if an applicant came in with an ADU, the planner would look at the ADU under the provisions of the ADU section of the code. They would not be looking at this section. However, um, if it makes the, the commission comfortable, we could uh, add at the end of that number three, um, expansion of existing residential structures by two or more units, comma, except for ADUs and JADUs. I think the concern I would have about that, though, is there may be another section of the code right. that talks about two units or something that doesn't have that exception. And then someone might use the arg opposite argument and say, well, you accepted it there, but you didn't accept it here, so therefore it must apply when it doesn't apply. So I think that's always the danger, too, of carving out an exception. And you know, clearly state law governs ADUs, and so I think that's why the, the city attorney did pr put in that more general uh, provision that state law would control, but we're happy to put in that language, just knowing that uh, it may solve one issue but open up another door. So we're fine either way, whatever the commission's comfortable with. Commissioner Lombardi, go ahead. Thank you, Chair. 
really quick while we're discussing this topic. Um, you know, I, I don't have too much to add other than that. I think later tonight we're going to hear some other zone text amendments that also could potentially have a lot of confusion in terms of the text and then referencing back to state code or other portions of text. So I do feel it's a slippery slope. I, I'm only speaking from my experience in things like Title 24 Energy Code, which is going through revisions and there have been meetings going on even this week on that. And it's been interesting to watch that code literally triple in size and the m number of errors and errata that starts to get put in when everything's cross-referencing everything. So I do think simplicity is helpful, although I appreciate the need to make sure that it's clear to ev everyone as well. So I, I don't know, I, I just feel keep it simple. Um, but, but tabling that, um, on this topic, I really appreciate staff's creative thinking and how you've developed standards that are objective, but also sensible and allow for some flexibility because I think that one thing that's really unique about West Hollywood when you look at our housing or any of our projects is that I'd like to think that they stand out from some of the other cities and these are the things that make a difference. So thank you for that. Um, I, I like some of the changes because they've been, they're clear but they also allow some leeway. I think one example of that would be um, just the fact that as we've seen in some of our commission um, hearings, when we're looking at parking, sometimes we're looking at permeability um, at grade or we're looking at a native soil and parking gets in the way of that effort toward um, ecological considerations. We have a lot of unique lots, a lot of infill lots, so you've done a lot there to improve that. Um, I, since Commissioner Cavallero brought up compatibility with architectural character and, and, and that note on page 41, um, sounds like we'll get to look at that again, so that's great. I guess one could maybe make the argument that something that looks completely different to a historic structure is compatible, but I see how that's confusing, so maybe we can continue that discussion. It sounds like that's not the focus of today, but I, I understand your concern. Um, on on um, car sharing, I don't know a lot about this, but it seems to be a very evolving topic. I know when you look at brands, there's new business models that are moving forward. Some people lease cars. In the future, you may have some sort of agreement where you have a car share and you have a ride hailing and all these things bundled in one, so it may be a little premature to study that too far right now. On, on bikes, there may be some opportunities there for pedestrian bicycles, um, but I don't have any ideas at the moment, honestly. Other than that, um, in general, I, I appreciate the, the code cleanup associated with this zone text amendment, and I agree with just about everything. I noted you know, a couple of minor concerns, graphical, et cetera, earlier, but in general, I, I appreciate the effort. Uh, Commissioner Lombardi, too, I had one piece of follow-up because you had asked earlier about uh, reference. It was on page 30 under 1928 OB, and that's under uh, lowercase b. There's language about residential uses in mixed use or multifamily residential projects with uh, language that says in which a minimum of 25% of the total unit count is set aside for affordable dwelling units. And the question was, how is that defined? I think um, there is a definition uh, under 1990.020 in the zoning code for affordable housing, capitalized, uh, and that's defined as residential units for moderate or lower income persons and cross references to the state law. So I think if the commission is interested in 
uh, making the intent of the framing more clear that that applied to deed-restricted affordable units, one option would be to change affordable dwelling units to affordable housing as a capitalized term. Okay, I appreciate that. That sounds like that would be a simple change that would make the intent clear. Thank you. Commissioner Gregoire, please go ahead. Um, I, I generally support staff's recommendation. Today I only want to make a comment about compact parking stalls at the long-range planning uh, subcommittee. I expressed concern about introducing the concept of compact parking stalls in residential buildings. However, I think staff came up with a really great compromise at, to, to allow them where, you know, in a building where there's going to be at least 25% deed-restricted affordable units. Um, I seem to think that would be a good, good thing to experiment with. Um, I've also expressed concern about the state-imposed parking limitations. Um, you know, I, I am concerned we're not going to be building su a sufficient parking in the coming years, and that's it's really st the state's fault. We can't really do anything about that. But my hope is where, the, where we're providing affordable housing, um, there might be actually more in incentive for the developer to in include more parking if they can uh, have 40% compact spaces. So. I think that's a, I think it's a great thing for us to experiment with. So, I support staff's recommendation this evening. Thank you. Any other comments? No. Okay. Um, I am generally in support of staff's recommendations. Um, I appreciate. I think the change that uh, city attorney just mentioned, as long as you know you're, you think it's legally acceptable, I'm, I'm aligned with that. I'm not opposed to clarifying in terms of applicability, I just don't, sometimes providing more language can be more confusing in my mind, and this is my opinion. Someone would be looking at the, the part of the code that refers to the ADU first and their rights there, rather than looking at this and being like, well now I can't build an ADU. Um, and again, I mean, state law is always going to control all parts of our code, whether they're a, whether the code has been brought up to, you know, up to par in terms of the language or not. So I would be, I would probably err on the side. I'm not against the intent of it. I just tend to think, as Commissioner Lombardi said, that simplicity is better and that if we know that state law will control that I would prefer that. But again, I kind of defer to what city attorney thinks is, is best insofar as interpretation is concerned because we know you can't, that's what lawyers do. <laughs> Yes, I'm happy to be outside the policy realm because that's all for you all on the dais. I, I would say I think um, I don't have an issue from a legal perspective if there was language added that said expansion of existing residential structures by um, two or more units, not including ADUs or JADUs. I would caution we do have to be careful. We can't cross-reference because the ADU, JADU, requirements have to live in a very specific place within the four corners of that ordinance. So I wouldn't recommend a, a cross-reference to other sections of the code, but I think if, if it's the uh, desire of the commission as a body to have some language that carves that out, I think that would be fine. 
as we're just making a recommendation to council, would you be comfortable, Commissioner Matos, with just making a recommendation that city council consider that as part of inclusion for the final resolution? Yes. Okay. Also, uh, just for whatever it's worth, there's a error typo in the title of the resolution. Last sentence, West Hollywood versus West Hollywood, missing an H. It does have a nice little ring to it, but it is wrong. <laughs> does anyone want to propose a motion? I move approval of staff's recommendation. Would that include the recommendation to council on the ADU, JADU language to clarify? Yes, Perfect. including that recommendation to council. And another request of clarification for the motion maker, would that also include the change um, within 1928-090, lowercase b, to change reference to affordable dwelling units to affordable housing as a capitalized and defined term? Yes, that is fine. Is that okay with the second as well? Okay. And Chair, also we had read into the record those other, the other changes. Uh, changes as well. So if the motion could include those, uh, that would Just, be appreciated. I, can, I think I can read those. That's page 7 of 58, section 19.28.030C number 3. That's required before parking. Page 24 of 58, 19.28.090A number 1. Strike in, or maybe it's number 2. Strike that is not located in the front yard setback. Is that correct? Yes, it is, Chair. Um, 19.28.090B, number three, the letter C is mistyped, correct? Correct. And then page 27, 19.28090B1, is that 313, it's 16 feet, is that correct? 16 feet, zero inches. Yes. Yes, correct. And in the first one, Chair, um, uh, the word required and the word excess, we were wanting to add where excess parking is permitted. Okay. Just so you all know, I'm writing everything down. <laughs> Not playing like self-made Sudoku or anything. Um, and also there were the other two potential recommendations about the car share and the bicycles. I didn't know if the commission wanted to address those or not. Uh, one option on that too would be if you want to do this existing motion and you could always take a subsequent motion on the, on the potential areas of additional study or it can be folded into the motion on the floor. It'd probably be easiest to incorporate it as long as you're aligned. Let's let's take a vote on the motion. So do we want to include what we just read into the motion, or do we want to vote on the motion as you stated it? Oh, no, we can, what was read in, we can include. With read in and with recommendations to explore car sharing and bicycle requirements? Or explore them for additional study, recommend them for additional study? What, um... What are we proposing to add to the motion? To look at that now or look Here, at that It might in the be future? easier just to do as a separate motion. Let's do it as a separate, as a separate motion. motion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. So the motion on the floor incorporates the changes read into the record by Rick Abramson. It includes a change to 1928090 with respect to um, the defined term affordable housing. And it also incorporates a recommendation to the city council that 1928020. A3, Section 3, uh, they consider including language that uh, makes clear that 
expansion of existing residential structures by two or more units does not include ADUs or JADUs. Okay, we're ready to vote. And the motion passes unanimously, um, approving resolution, draft resolution number PC 23-1515 as amended for this first part. There is no appeal process. This is a recommendation to city council. And chair, I think to, to Rick's point, to the extent there's uh, an interest by the commission as part of the same item to study the two, uh, or to make a recommendation to the city council to study two items, car shares and bicycles. Uh, that's that can be considered by the commission as a as a body. I have a, I have a question. Would that come back to this body for review before going to the city council? Okay, thank you. Probably should have just included it in the last motion, <laughs> but I'm okay <laughs> making a motion that we uh, recommend that uh, we study those two additional issues. Second. And have it come back to the planning commission. And that motion passes unanimously. There is no appeal process. This is a recommendation to city council. Thank you, Commissioner. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Rosen, is there something else that I need to say? Uh, I think if you wanna just note that the public hearing item has concluded. <laughs> okay. Okay, the public, item the public item hearing has concluded, in case anyone was in question. Um, I'm gonna just make a proposal that we take just a very quick couple minute break so we can get some water, use the bathroom. We have two more items before us. Is that okay with everybody? Okay, all right. Okay, I think we're gonna go ahead and get started if everybody's ready to go. I know that was more than five minutes. Thank you for being flexible. Uh, we're moving into item 12B. This is a zone text amendment to regulate unlawful vacation rentals. And I am going to hand this over to staff. Good, eve Good evening, Chair and members of the City's Planning Commission. My name is Vito Adamitis. I'm the City's Neighborhood and Business Safety Manager as part of the Department of Community Safety. I oversee the City's Code Enforcement Division. I'm pleased to be here tonight to present to you the zone text amendment amending section 19.36.331 of the city's municipal code that would expand the city's authority to regulate unlawful vacation rentals. The city council has made short-term rental enforcement a top priority and directed staff to explore ways to enhance enforcement efforts. This item before you tonight is consistent with the council's prior direction. There are six proposed amendments to help enhance the city's efforts to address the problem of short-term rentals in the city of West Hollywood. And briefly, I'll go over all six of them. The first one is expanding the definition of prohibitions on advertisements to include individuals who falsely advertise a vacation rental within the city, but where the actual unit is located outside the city. Next, impose liability to hosting platforms that complete booking transactions for vacation rentals within the city. Next, 
Expand and clarify that enforcement options include but are not limited to administrative penalties, civil and criminal prosecution. Next, establish that persons who violate the West Hollywood Municipal Code sections are responsible for reimbursing the city and any law enforcement agencies for investigative costs and requiring retroactive payment on all transit occupancy taxes, normally referred to as TOT, to the city. Number five, create a private right of action for individuals to bring suit against hosts in violation of the city's ordinance. And lastly, number six, authorize administrative subpoenas in order to ensure compliance with the city's regulations. With regard to the word, uh, uh, to the use of the word person, quote unquote, within the zone text amendment, it is defined within zoning code section 19.90.020. And it says, quote, person, any individual, firm, co-partnership, corporation, company, association, joint stock association, city, county, state, or district, and includes any trustee, receiver, assignee, or other similar representative thereof, end quote. For background on this item, in November of last year, the city council directed staff in the city attorney's office to review the city's short-term rental ordinance to determine if any amendments could be made to hold online platforms and users accountable for using false West Hollywood addresses in rental listings and direct staff to work with the city of Los Angeles on short-term rental platforms referencing false property addresses within the city of West Hollywood. In December, staff along with the city attorney's office met with the city of Los Angeles planning department. They acknowledged the problem and informed staff that they would be willing to communicate with any short-term rental platform to remove any false advertisements. Staff also learned that the city of Los Angeles has limited resources to address compliance-related issues with short-term rentals. Just last month on April 17th, city staff provided the city council with an update on short-term vacation compliance and shared that short-term rental activity continues to be a problem within our community. For example, from the five-year period between 2018 to 2023, the city has received 679 service requests and issued 209 citations regarding short-term rental activity. There was interest from the city council and members of the public to ex explore additional tools for the city to use in addressing the problem of short-term rental activity within the city. Although the West Hollywood Municipal Code already prohibits short-term vaca short vacation rentals and related advertisements, the city continues to experience difficulty in regulating this unlawful activity. Staff has had difficulty in obtaining information on unlawful rentals in order to successfully prosecute these cases. In an effort to assist the city's code enforcement officers and enhance compliance efforts, staff in consultation with the city attorney's office proposes expanding liability under the zoning code to hosting platforms 
and host falsely advertising within the city, as well as increasing enforcement tools and a number of other options to deter unlawful conduct. With regard to the Zone Text Amendment addressing hosting platforms, this is Zone Text Amendment number two out of the six. This is the most substantive addition to the ordinance. Staff in the city attorney's office has imposed liability to the extent they believe the law permits. That is, staff does not believe that the city could impose liability against the hosting platforms for the actual posting and advertising of an unlawful rental nor does staff believe that the city could impose liability for a hosting platform's failure to monitor or edit such unlawful postings on their websites. Platforms have raised these defenses in other lawsuits with government agencies. The Federal Communications Decency Act, known as CDA, which was uh, adopted in 1996, prohibits treating these platforms as, quote, the publisher or, quote, speaker of any information provided by another, for example, the host for these illegal short-term rentals, and immunizes hosting platforms from liability under any inconsistent local law. Therefore, the city has limited the hosting platform's liability to processing what is referred to as booking transactions and accepting what is referred to as booking fees associated with unlawful vacation rentals. This approach has been upheld by courts in both San Francisco and Santa Monica. The courts have found that such liability stems from the direct conduct of the hosting platform. For example, providing and collecting the book, a booking fee for, un, for an unlawful rental, rather than from the actual posting of the advertisement itself. And this, therefore, avoids preemption under the CDA that I just mentioned. Lastly, it is important to point out that the city does already have existing fines and penalties that are specific to unlawful vacation short-term rentals. And those fines are significant. In fact, some of the highest in the state of California. Generally, the code enforcement process involves responding to calls and complaints for service regarding short-term rental activity. The first step in that process is for the investigator, for the officer to issue a warning notice and also request that the unit in question immediately stop uh, uh, being occupied as a short-term rental, and also the advertisement associated with that short-term rental immediately cease. When this does not result in compliance, code enforcement officers can issue a citation. These fines can range from four to 800% of the advertised rental rate, and that advertised rental rate is times a minimum number of nights required to rent. Typically in the ads it says a minimum three night rental. So you take that monthly or that uh, nightly rate times the minimum number of days to rent that unit and multiply it for a first offense by 400 up to 800%. These fines can result in thousands of dollars in fines. 
I would like to also make another distinction, another type of short-term rental, and what we do in terms of uh, imposing fines and penalties are short-term rentals where the, there is no advertised rate. It just says short-term rental, no rate associated with that. The fines for those types of short-term rentals range from $1,000 to $5,000 for violations. While I do um, appreciate the interest that many folks have about how the city finds out about short-term rentals, what we do in our investigative process, what do the officers do, I would like to, um, to the degree possible, avoid going into those specific details because they're part of our investigative process, which I don't want to divulge because there could be folks that monitor what we do in the way of enforcement as a way to continue avoiding and evading the city's regulations. But I will tell you, officers uh, regularly check uh, listings. They regularly go out to identified short-term rentals. These are short-term rentals that have a specific address. When we have a specific address, and this is one of the most difficult parts of this process, we're able to initiate contact with the responsible parties. It could be the property manager, it could be the property owner, landlord, et cetera. Um, as I indicated, for example, a short-term rental that is advertised at $300 a night, the initial first violation for that, when you take that $300 per night, multiply it, let's say, by three, because it's a th three-night minimum, the first offense would be $3,600. The second offense would be 600% of the advertised rate, which would result in $5,400 in fines and penalties. And the third offense would be 800% of that rate, which translates to $7,200. As you can see, it quickly begins to add up very significantly. Finally, the proposed zone text amendments before you include explicitly authorizing the city council to issue administrative subpoenas in order to ensure compliance with city codes. While the city council is already authorized under the municipal code to issue legislative subpoenas, this amendment is to make it clear that the council is authorized to issue subpoenas to hosts, landlords, and hosting platforms in order to ensure compliance with city regulations and to minimize the impacts that this community is experiencing from these activities. In conclusion, in light of the City Council making short-term rental enforcement a top priority to address the negative impacts they have on our community, staff is bringing the aforementioned proposed zone tax amendments to the Planning Commission tonight for your consideration. Upon your approval of the resolution for the zone tax amendments amending the city's municipal code regulating vacation rentals, staff will be able to bring the zone tax amendments to the city council at their June 26th meeting for consideration and adoption of the code amendments. This concludes my presentation. I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have at this time. Great, thank you very much. Any questions for staff? Go ahead, Mr. Manos. Thank you, Chair Jones. Thank you for the presentation, Vito, it was great. Um, so a couple quick questions for you. So to my understanding, 
the city has, has our existing code where we're able to enforce the short-term rental ordinance. Yes. This is bolstering the existing ordinance to make it stronger so that we're able to enforce. And now we're looking to enforce on third-party uh, websites or advertisers that actually book out these short-term rentals. Is that correct? That is correct. And that addition is new. Uh, in this regard? Yes. Okay. The hosting, holding the liability, extending the liability to the hosting platform is, as I uh, indicated at the at, towards the beginning of my presentation, mm -hmm. this zone text amendment number two is very significant because now we're holding those hosting platforms responsible and liable for this activity. That's wonderful. Okay. And then my next question is, when we look at, you know, is there a, I guess, when we look at the ordinance, we see the word persons kind of brought up a lot throughout the ordinance. It's enforcement actions against persons. Is there a definition existing in statute for that word, for the word persons? Uh, yes, Commissioner Matos, there is a section of our zoning ordinance. Uh, it's, it's within that uh, section that includes all our definitions. I believe it's 1990-020. Um, and it does include a definition of persons that's used here as a capitalized term to include any individual firm, co-partnership, corporation, company, association, joint stock association, city, county, state, or district, and includes any trustee, receiver, assignee, or other similar representative thereof. Perfect. So with that broad definition, property management companies that are illegally engaging in short-term rentals would also be able to be um, held to this standard under the code, correct? Yes, the language is purposefully broad in its applicability. Okay, perfect. And then my last question is, what kind of um, what kind of proactive outreach or proactive proof gathering are you doing to help bring uh, these folks, uh, you know, to be accountable under the short-term rental ordinance? Thank you, Commissioner uh, Matos. It is anticipated that staff would conduct a uh, public outreach campaign to ensure that not only the hosting platforms and all of the individuals and businesses engaged in short-term rental activity are aware of these new regulations, but we also want our residents in the community to be aware that there's now additional resources and opportunities to address this problem, whether it's in their building, it's in their neighborhood. We want people to know that this is something that's available and it's something that we now have better tools to address here in our community. So we definitely want to get the word out. We also have the ability for folks to contact the city right now on our website. There's a service request, uh, code at weho.org is an email that can be uh, used. Um, so those um, opportunities, while they exist now, we want to enhance going forward so people really have the word, both our residents and members of the community, and also the people who are engaged in this activity need to be aware that the city is stepping up its efforts to deal with this problem in our community. Wonderful, thank you. That was just, that's a great answer to that question. Just important that people are aware of these updates and that, that know what steps we're taking to address it. 
Um, one last question. You had mentioned the existing fee schedule is on a 400, 600, 800% um, times the nightly rate and the minimum nights. Um, to my understanding, to this point, we've been utilizing that for hosts and any individual that engages in it, but not necessarily the third party sites, correct? That's correct. Um, and so. And is that outlined in code, the fee schedule? Yes, it, there is an adopted fee schedule. Um, we would be happy and um, definitely would support a recommendation from the Planning Commission to the Council for staff as we prepare to bring this item back to the Council on June 26 for us to take a look at that. And we would work with our legal team to ensure that we captured that. Yeah, I think that, you know, when I looked at this, it was kind of, you know, wanting to assess the adequacy of those fee structures when applied to third-party sites, right? Because right now we've been using a fee structure that's been going directly to individuals, and while individuals, a hefty fine might include, you know, like you mentioned, 3,600, 5,400, 7,200, that's hefty for an individual, but for a large third-party entity that's worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, um, we might want to ensure that the fee schedule is right size for that kind of uh, work that would be required to hold them accountable. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yes. No more questions. Great. Any additional questions for staff at this time? No? Oh, Commissioner Lombardi, go ahead. Most of my questions have been asked and answered. Thank you, Commissioner Matos. I do have a question. Um, just clarification, because there was some discussion about um, the use of, of person and where it's referenced in the code. And I know, Isaac, we talked about this yesterday, so I was just curious, are you saying that this is sufficient, or do we need to update person to say persons with a capital P, or what's the? Uh, we feel comfortable it is sufficient as defined, and there are specific carve-outs uh, that more uh, specifically apply to hosting platforms, but we also have the broader umbrella term as used throughout um, that was read into the record under the, the existing definition of persons. Okay, thank you. The other question I have is, fee, fee questions have been, been addressed, so I, I understand that. Um, I'm just curious if you have any insight into how a hosting platform may transfer liability um, to the person who's posting? Are there any known clauses or indemnification? Or I, I guess my, my question is what happens when you aim this toward a hosting platform? Do they, is that transferred back again to the resident? Or do we need to be mindful of that? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I would imagine uh, there are terms of service that may be applicable. I don't know those offhand in terms of the use of the service and, and maybe platform generated terms that apply to that. I would say uh, our office worked closely with the code enforcement team to include only those recommendations for changes that were have been vetted and challenged in other jurisdictions to apply to hosting platforms and have been utilized elsewhere to uh, attempt to mitigate the issue and address the liability of the host platform. Okay, yeah, it, I wanna make sure I'm asking questions 
So difficult line to thread there, depending on who's, you know, much larger maybe fee structure is necessary for a hosting platform versus an individual. Um, what do you know? What these other jurisdictions may be experiencing in terms of success when they may levy a, a fine for for a violation that goes to the hosting platform, and how much of a fine that's been? Is it something that's pennies to them, or I can't speak to this specificity of how it's worked in other jurisdictions. I know the intent in crafting the regulations and having them withstand judicial scrutiny elsewhere is that the host platforms, by nature of this form of liability, to the extent there are issues with specific users, the idea would be that they have an incentive to uh, act more proactively to uh, try to restrict or otherwise alleviate someone who's unlawfully using it on their platform. I can't, I cannot uh, speak to sort of the, the specificity uh, with which other jurisdictions have been successful. It is a big undertaking in terms of time and resources, but I think the biggest um, initial step is to have a, a codified enforceable restriction and then utilize sort of uh, the available resources. Um, but I don't have familiarity with how, how it's sort of uh, played out in other jurisdictions. Okay, and I appreciate that that's difficult to answer. Um, and a lot of nuance to it, so I hope that discussion continues um, should this move forward, but I, I appreciate your insight. That's my last question. Okay, any other questions for staff at this time? No? Okay, with that, we will move into public comment for this item. David, can you let me know how many speakers we have in chambers and on the phone? Um, Chair, in chambers, we have about, uh, it looks like 12 speakers, and on Zoom we have uh, two speakers. Would you like to start with Zoom or in chambers? Um, I, maybe we start with Zoom just quickly to run through those, and then we can give all of the people who are in chambers an opportunity to speak. Okay, thank you. Um, I'll turn it over to Joe for the Zoom public comment section. Good evening. The individuals having the last four digits of 9751, uh, go ahead and state your name and city of residence, and remember to star six to unmute. Thank you. I appreciate your time um, to, the, uh, to the commission. Jamie Francis Wendell, 12-year resident of West Hollywood. I just wanted to emphasize Living here, I have had to fight and literally trying to remain an affordable unit since I've lived here. It is based on statistics other than Santa Monica and Culver City, Culver City, which does not have rent control laws like Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, and West Hollywood. So I chose this city because of the protection. And I thought maybe Section 8 and certain programs would be protected. No, I was wrong. There was nothing in the ordinance at that time. So much so that people were being priced out. And you know what was causing this dilemma, discrepancy? Because what happened was the onset of uh, short-term rentals. That people were not disclosing to the city. People were being underhanded. They were trying to rent them out themselves as residents, as tenants, or the owners themselves would enter negotiations and contracts 
and not inform the city. So you had people who were going behind the city's back, not giving ample housing supply that was made available for residents who could move interchangeably within city jurisdiction or those trying to move into the city altogether. What happened is that some of you that lived here for more than almost two decades, I've been here for 12 years, I saw the onset back in 2004 and 2005. How notorious. But there was not a name until you had people who thought this could be an industry. And you know the victims of that industry? West Hollywood, Santa Monica, Culver City, Beverly Hills, and to this day, ordinances have to be revisited time and time again. The city failed, abject failure with enforcement, code enforcement. I had implored Jeff Jones when he was in that capacity, you know, in my building as well as next door, that people were doing these illegal ADUs. You know, these are accessory dwelling units that they want for Airbnbs. They are not affordable dwelling units. Let me clarify that. There is no affordable housing that private landlords will want to take. They do not want to take Section 8. It has to be imposed by the state and the city to uphold the law. And if they don't, then it's discriminatory housing and practices. And it's really bad that the city did not foresee this. And they basically, what happened with these buildings and these developments, when they were supposed to have affordable units, they made them corporate rentals. They made them entertainment rentals. They made them medical rentals, like, excuse me, for medical assistance and medical care rentals. And they were not going to the people who deserved them, who should have qualified for them, because the city didn't have an ordinance at that place or time. And so guess what? They went to court, and the courts had to rule in favor of the developers because they signed the contract before there was ever a law on the books, before there was an ordinance. So please, we have to urge you to pass this, finalize it, and I urge the commission to do so because they're abusing their powers and privileges, and it shouldn't be the case. Thank you very much. Good evening. The individual with the last four digits of 5747, please state your name and residence, and then remember to star six to unmute. Hello, good evening, and thank you for giving me the chance to participate. My name is Shadi Umesh. I'm from West Hollywood. I'm actually the general manager for the One Hotel in West Hollywood, and I would like just to shed some color on really the impact of the short-term rental. You know, I appreciate the other fellow and residents of West Hollywood talking about the impact on residents. I want to turn it a little bit and talk about the impact on businesses. You know, the fact that the losses that the short-term rental are causing businesses is really tremendous, and it's not only for owners, it's not only for businesses, but for the actual people, the actual hourly staff that they work in hotels, because all of these businesses that are going to the short-term, really they belong for motels and hotels and accommodation houses in the city. The fact is that every room that ends up being within the short-term rental is an hour of work that is taken away from our residents. These are our people that we need to protect. If you do a quick calculation, and I really don't know how many fines were given, and I don't know how big of a deal it is, but I understand that it's really a big impact. If you calculate these hours and you start thinking of this hard-working housekeeper or hard-working 
conduct agent or hard-working cook in the back that they're working hard to make a living for their family. And we as, as owners, we have to start cutting these hours because we don't have the business. The business is going elsewhere. I really hope that you keep that in mind as, as I urge you to pass this ordinance. And I urge the city to be able to take legal action. And I understand the amendments are necessary and important, but we should not wait for another year or two or three or four to pass that. And as my other colleague residents mentioned, we, we, missed, we missed it. We missed it for many years ago. We're still missing it. I really believe we're still chasing our tail, and, and it is a time to put an end for that, once and for all. And if it's not for residents, it's for the people who are working hard and trying to make a living and support their families. And for owners who invested all this money in building these hotels and in providing you know, safe environment for our guests and for visitors who are coming over, and not just only you know, a random small apartment somewhere where their safety does not even exist, and God knows the amount of trust that we put our visitors when they come over here. And thank you so much for taking my call. And that was our last caller, uh, public speaker for Zoom. We will now move to council chambers. Our first speaker will be Roberto Gonzalez, followed by Rafael Gamon. And you'll have three minutes. Please state your name and city of residence. Um, good evening, uh, Madam Chair, Council uh, Commissioners. Uh, my name is uh, Roberto Ramirez Gonzalez, and I don't need any further introduction. I am supposed to sit back and enjoy my golden years of my retirement. Today I find my passionate heart beating fast and hard, kindled by the nasty experiences in my building this year. There has been an ag aggressive takeover by illegal businesses in my peaceful home. Business entities have taken advantage of legal loopholes in West Hollywood rental laws, thus unprotected by code officers refusing to prevent, penalize, or stop criminal activities. I am here. I am not too old, too weak, and too stupid to ignore my rights. Airbnb-style short-term or long-term units in rent-controlled dwellings are in direct violation of the laws designated to protect us. I have followed all the recommendations by the City of West Hollywood departments to aid me in stopping these invaders. They have physically and verbally threatened me, and I reached out to code enforcement to protect me. I stand before you not just as a senior citizen, but as a retired U.S. Navy Vietnam veteran. I am not going to sit back and allow people elected to protect my privileges to now ignore my rights. Code officers have snuffed and have lied to me these last four months. The points on the agenda today are making a farce of what the real issues are at hand. You too have been duped by the West Hollywood code officers who pretend that today's agenda points could bring any change to the ongoing legal activities in my retirement housing. You could put an end to this deception by simply demanding that our West Hollywood code enforcement officers to be in contempt. If I was to do something illegal, like an unlawful lease or claim a deceiving possession, I would be instantly interrogated, penalized, or even locked up for violating existing laws. 
No side laws or strength of codes needs to be removed from an unwanted renter from a place that has been legally obtained and converted into a business. Instead of having me remind you of your duties, why don't you delegate your power and clear the laws that are already in place? All you have done thus far is united citizens like me to become politically active. I invite everyone here today to join CES Eugene and Tori Funk to fight and return West Hollywood to the rent-protected city as promoted throughout this great state of California that we all live in. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Our next speaker is uh, Raphael, followed by uh, Tori Funk. Dear Madam Chair, dear commissioners, dear lawyers, I will fly through all six points and respond. Also, I am for enhancing amend and, and amend laws where needed. The proposed issues are absolutely useless. It's a rather insult that we have to fix something off the fact. Number one, expand the definition of prohibitions on advertisements. The sections 230 of the Indecency Act protects the internet from making any false claims as they like. But the city of West Hollywood could regulate the actions that follows. By the time a false advertisement is discovered, a renter has paid the various platforms for a rented unit. The unaware renter discovers a false address only minutes before entering the unit he or she rented. If code would shut down illegal rental units before they are advertised, no visitors to West Hollywood would find themselves in a predicament to sue anyone. Number two, imposing liability for hosting platforms. The Board of Commissioners in West Hollywood has absolutely no impact on saying who and how the internet platform regulates truth, facts, or lies. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States sidestepped the ruling on the legal sh that legally shields that protect internet companies from lawsuits relating to content posted by users. Point number two is verbiage, only intended to mislead while code officers are enforcing NADA. Number three, expanding and clarifying the enforcement options included administrative penalties. All laws to enforce hefty penalties and even remove illegal renters are on the books. Code enforcement officers do a bare minimum to prevent illegal rental business from, become, from booming in the city of West Hollywood. You are the city commissioners. Delegate. And when the new sworn-in members, please command the officers to enforce the laws that we have already on hand. Number four, persons who violate or are, are responsible for reimbursing the city. Again, all the required laws are existing and on the books available to code officers to investigate, verify, ticket, collect penalties, and including retro payments and TOT. Contrary to what Mr. Adomadis just said to you, these taxes have not been collected. And it's a direct result of the inability of city councils and commissioners to delegate and check and verify that code officers are doing their duty. Number five, individuals to bring suits against hosts. Same response if code officers prevent super hosts from advertising multiple legal rental units before they are active, we would not be in this situation discussing the worthless point needed for private right of actions to enforce reimbursement against the super host that should never have in the first place cheated the system. They cheat because your code officers do not enforce the laws on hand. And finally, six, authorize administrative subpoenas in order to ensure compliance. Again, my dear commissioners and Madam Chair, 
be aware that the existing laws available in the city of West Hollywood are sufficient to stop, penalize, and shut down any illegal short-term or long-term advertised unit in a rent-controlled building. Your attorneys, if correctly informed by code enforcement officers, already can ensure compliance with subpoenas and shut down this illegal business. However, in the absence of code officers doing a minimum to investigate and provide a case for these lawyers, nothing will change. Thank you for giving me time. Uh, thank you, sir. Our next speaker is Chori Funk, followed by Danielle Wilson. Chori, you have three minutes. Hello, hello, commissioners and chair. My name is Chori Funk, and I work as a data analyst at Better Neighbors Los Angeles. Better Neighbors is a coalition of tenants, housing advocates, and um, hotel workers who all have the shared goal of advocating for the passage and enforcement of short-term rentals in Southern California. Better Neighbors um, operates an a hotline for residents to call and report illegal short-term rentals. Last summer, we started to receive phone calls from residents who were complaining about short-term rentals that were located in Los Angeles, but were being advertised in West Hollywood. Um, hosts do this to avoid Los Angeles's um, home-sharing ordinance, which was passed in 2018. Um, using this tactic, they can avoid detection by Los Angeles enforcement agencies and remove rent-stabilized units off the rental market. Um, this tactic also complicates West Hollywood's ability to enforce their own ordinance as they have to decipher if a listing in West Hollywood is actually in West Hollywood in, or in LA. Short-term rentals remove housing from the rental market that could serve as home for long-term residents. They on fairly compete with hotels as they um, often don't pay taxes or comply with building and safety codes. And um, people who live next to short-term rentals um, no longer live next to a friendly face. They live next to um, disruptive tourists who often have no stake in the community that they are visiting. Um, we believe that the proposed amendments are good, but we also believe the city could be doing more to enforce the ordinance as it stands. Lawyers at Better Neighbors believe an appropriate means to address the bane switch tactic specifically would be to seek injunctive relief um, against the host and platforms for violations of West Hollywood's municipal code under the fair competition law, California Business um, and Profession Code Section 17200 which the city attorney has expressed authority to do pursuant to section 17204. Directed by Better Neighbors, the city of LA initiated a lawsuit on this basis last year against VRBO. The settlement, or the lawsuit, resulted in a monetary settlement and improved data sharing um, agreements between the platform and the city. The city can also issue um, more fines and higher fines. Um, we have reported um, properties to the city with evidence that we have yet to see citations at. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Danielle Wilson uh, will be followed by uh, Stephanie, um, who will be uh, the translator for four people. Good evening, Chair Jones and Honorable Commissioners. My name is Danielle Wilson. I'm a renter here in West Hollywood, and I'm an organizer with Unite Here Local 11, which is the Hotel Workers Union. I wanted to add a little bit of context for this issue tonight, for the testimony that you're going to be hearing, and for why all the housekeepers behind me who worked eight-hour shifts today are still here to testify before you on this issue. Some of you might remember a time when you could work a union service job at a grocery store, a hotel, or at a deli, um, and you could maybe afford to buy a home in LA County. You could send your kids to college. 
That is so far from the reality that we all know today. And our members who work full-time union jobs can't afford to pay rent. That is the top issue for our membership and for all working people in LA County. They're traveling from the end of the county or from other counties to get to their jobs here in West Hollywood. And I know that this commission and the city cares deeply about this issue. We of course need to be building housing, building affordable housing and near good jobs along transit, but it is insane that we're bleeding our existing valuable housing stock, rent controlled housing stock that can and should house long-term tenants to tourists. We and our partner organization, Better Neighbors LA that you just heard from, are experts on this issue. We've passed some of the strongest protections in the country in places like Santa Monica where it's been very successful. And we wanna to continue to be a resource to the city as we have tried to be and, and believe we have been. Um, and as you've heard tonight, the sentiment is basically that these amendments are good, you, you should pass them. Um, but with all due respect, we believe that you could take action now. And it's impacting people's lives now. It's impacting housing opportunities for people like our members. And so we hope that you'll pass these amendments and that you'll keep your foot on the gas and really stay on top of this issue. Because one of the reasons why this bait and switch is happening is because hosts believe they won't be penalized for it. So we just want you to keep prioritizing this. We appreciate that the city council's made this a priority and we want everyone in the city to keep doing that. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, Stephanie, um, our next four speakers um, will require a Stephanie for a translation. And all four people will show. Just two? Okay. Um, so your two people have the three minutes each. Okay. And then the others will be the three minutes also. Buenas noches, mi nombre es Morena, trabajo en, el, en Andas West Hollywood por 27 años. Yo exijo a la Comisión de Planificación que aprueben los cambios para que, para rentas de corto plazo que, que ayudarán a la ciudad. Las rentas a corto plazo impactan injustamente a los hoteles, no solo les cuesta más a mis compañeros y a, y a mí, a la comunidad, que, 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 que ayudamos también, limiten oportunidad, oportunidades de trabajo. Gracias. So, she's saying, hello, my name is Morena Hernandez. I have worked at the Hyatt on Bass in West Hollywood for 27 years. I urge the Planning Commission to pass short-term rental changes that will help the city. Short-term rentals unfairly impact hotels. Not only does it cost my colleagues and me more to be in the communities we help, they also limit job opportunities. Thanks. Buenas noches a todos. Mi nombre es Lourdes. Trabajo para Andes West Hollywood por, por 13 años y vivo con mi hija y sus familiares para ayudar a pagar una renta de más de cuatro mil dólares al mes. Y no se me hace justo que yo, vi, ayudando a la economía de West Hollywood, no tenga un lugar donde vivir cerca de mi trabajo, porque tengo que manejar más de una hora. Y el, 
El short-term rentals nos quita trabajo y operan sin regulaciones necesarias. Solo le pido a la comisión que apruebe el amendment. Gracias. So, hello, my name is Lourdes. I'm an Andas West Hollywood worker for the last 13 years. I live with my daughter and her family to help pay the over $4,000 of rent that we pay every month, all while living an hour away. It's not fair that I contribute to the West Hollywood economy and can't live near here. Short-term rentals take jobs away from us and operate without necessary regulations. I ask the commission to approve the amendment. Thank you. Hi, my name is Natasha Wong. I'll be speaking um, on behalf of a housekeeper named Gladys Avila who works at a hotel in this area, but she lives in Victorville and had to head home. Um, Hello, my name is Gladys Avila, and I've worked as a housekeeper for 11 years in a hotel in this area. I cannot afford the rent here, and for this reason, I have had to move to Victorville. It takes me three hours to commute to work um, and regular average traffic with good weather. My coworkers and I work really, really hard to create a good experience for the tourists and visitors that come to this area, um, and those who are lucky enough to find housing nearby are barely able to make ends meet and spend the majority of their income to pay their rent. Um, so I urge the Planning Commission to approve the proposed amendments um, on this vacation rental policy and to help um, the City of West Hollywood to better enforce the ordinance. And I also urge the City Council to take action against illegal STRs now. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. And our last public speaker in chambers will be uh, Danny. Good evening, commissioners. Um, I'd like to thank the city of West Hollywood for taking this very important first big step. Um, if the city of Los Angeles doesn't have the capacity to do their part on the matter, then the city of West Hollywood should do everything in its power to rectify and alleviate the issue, and more importantly, to stay on top of it. Um, as I said, this is a very good first step, and we should do all we can to protect our housing stock. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And Chair, I believe that is our last public speaker for this item. Okay, great, thank you. And thank you all very much for coming out tonight. Um, so we're going to close the public comment portion of the public hearing and move into discussion and deliberation. Again, I just want to make sure everyone is clear that we will not be voting to approve anything tonight. This is a recommendation that we're making to City Council as part of um, our recommendation to them for the Zone Text Amendment. So um, thank you again for coming. It is very important. We do appreciate you. Um, would anyone like to speak? Commissioner Matos. Thank you, Chair Jones. Um, you know. Thank you for reiterating that point that tonight our role is to recommend, make a recommendation to City Council. Um, I am inclined to recommend the passage of this because any new tools that we can put in the city's tool belt to enforcing the short-term rental ordinance in this city is a night well spent. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of new things to my understanding that this new update to the um, ordinance will allow us to do things like find third-party websites that are hosting these um, rentals to begin with 
um, especially when there's fees collected um, on behalf of an illegal activity. Um, my one recommendation that I think that we should add to this to, for city council consideration is for them to assess the adequacy of the existing fee schedule as it relates to third party websites. And the reason I'm recommending that is because, you know, um, I think Vito eloquently outlined, you know, the current structure is on a per complaint basis. So the first time might be a 400% um, fine, the second time might be a 600% fine, and the third time might be an 800% fine. And when you're looking at the number of nights, minimum nights, times the cost of the nightly room rate, that might be, you know, like he said, $5,000, $7,000 to a large corporate entity, that is nothing. Um, and I think that if we're going to look at starting to go after the hosts of these types of listings when they're collecting fees on uh, a, a violation of the ordinance, then we should consider a, a freestanding fee schedule and then assess, you know, do we want to mirror the fees of the existing ordinance that has been, in, uh, that has been enforced or does this warrant new set of fees or higher fees? Um, I think that that recommendation is appropriate um, and I would make that recommendation. Otherwise, I th I'm comfortable with moving this forward tonight. Thank you, Commissioner Matos. Uh, Commissioner Copeland? Hi, thank you. Um, you that Commissioner Matos' comments brought up a uh, comment, maybe something that I, a question that I missed if I could ask uh, of staff. Um, when we're talking about the fee schedule, what would be the difference as far as enforcement? Sometimes there are tenants who will do the Airbnb, you know, uh, either with or without the manager's um, knowledge and permission. So if we're talking about someone who has multiple um, listings, is that enforced any differently than if it's an individual listing? What's what's the difference there between the the fines, the fine schedule as far as that? Is there one? Suppose someone had six of them and another person had one. I mean, it doesn't matter the number of units. It's for each individual incident. Is that how the fine schedule goes? Thank you, Commissioner Copeland. Um, a couple of points I'd like to make before I answer that. The first thing that we know is that there are typically multiple listings for the same unit. And so we try to drill down in that investigation to narrow it down to the specific unit that we're trying to identify. Mm -hmm. And so this is part of the challenge, as we know. Um, right now in the city, as of April, there were something like 900 listings for close to just under 700 actual units. So we know there's duplicate listings for individual units. We would review your uh, question with regard to if it, one person has multiple units, we would look at if those are separate and individual properties, then those Correct. would be separate violations under the ordinance. Okay, but there's no escalating fines as far as if you have multiple as opposed to, to one that define schedule. Correct. Would be the same. Okay, um, thank you for clarifying that for me. I appreciate it. Um, I, I think anything that will help enforce violations. Uh, is a good thing. 
the short-term rentals affect the safety and quality of life for residents. I mean, we've heard everything from increased tenant harassment because long-term tenants become targets to get their units so that they can rent them for a higher amount. We've heard everything from drug drops to parties to rock and roll bands playing ear-splitting guitar at all hours, too. It, it's just um, the, the quality of life issues and safety issues. It's not fair to, that... Um, Residents have to live with uh, their apartment buildings being run like hotels and uh, for, for profit, no matter who's doing it. So I am definitely in, in favor of moving this forward. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Caballero. Thank you, Chair Jones. This is another question to staff because, I mean, I'm in complete um, support of this Z ZTA, but I guess I'd like to understand the only way you can enforce this is if, like, a, for, for code enforcement to go to the door gives them the citation, but we need to have an ad that backs it up in order to enforce it, correct? So, sir. Commissioner Carl, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. I have the same problem with my name. Um, <laughs> That's okay. C Commissioner Carvalho, um, we would um, encounter short-term rentals where we actually knock on the door or we find an actual ad um, so we can begin our trace effort to find where that unit is located and actually find a specific location. So it is correct that it is helpful to find the ad and the, the unit that's connected to that ad. And the ad points to a unit where we're trying to find the location within the city. And this is where it becomes difficult, right? Because oftentimes that ad information does not show the address of that unit. Right. Typically it's not provided online. Um, I will point out that in our efforts, roughly about 17% of the total number of short-term rentals in the city are we actually able to what's, what's, what's referred to as identified short-term rental, where there's an, there's an address connected to it. So it kind of illustrates the challenge and why we're bringing these own text amendments and working with our city attorney team to have a better tool to address that. So if we know that there's a platform, a hosting platform that is engaging in these activities, that gives us another tool to go after. Right. And we also have the ability to issue through the zone text amendments before you administrative um, subpoenas where we can, as I indicated, uh, issue those to the property owners, to the hosts, and a whole number of people that are involved in this activity. Uh, it's another, uh, it's not only another tool, but it's an elevated tool to help us solve the problem that we're trying to address. Okay, I'm totally in favor, again, I'm totally in favor of the CTA. I know of a, I've heard of a specific situation where short-term rentals are happening, but when code enforcement goes to the door, they're saying we're friends of, of the person who owns the apartment, we're just staying here for a couple of weeks. And everybody else in the building knows that it's a short-term rental. How, how, do you that, how do you trace that? How do you enforce that? It's an enforcement question, and I know how challenging it is. It is an enforcement question. We know of circumstances and have um, been involved in circumstances where tenants are subletting out their unit without the knowledge of either the landlord or the property owner. And typically lease agreements for rental units have a prohibition 
that says you are not allowed to sublease your unit without specific approval or authorization from the landlord. So we're aware of circumstances where the landlord or the property owner has come to us and said, I did not know this was going on. Thank you for letting us know. I'm the responsible property owner. I will take care of this as I'm now being held accountable for these violations. Uh, and in some cases we've seen where these uh, tenants were immediately notified that they're in violation or breach of their lease agreement and that constitutes grounds for other things to happen as well. Thank you. Any additional comments or feedback at this time? Commissioner Lombardi. Sorry, trying to avoid microphone noise. I, I do want to thank all the public that they, they came out to speak tonight. Um, and I am wondering if, if staff could maybe reach out to Robert Gonzalez and just make sure that, that any avenues um, that are available for issues that he's experienced um, can be addressed because it sounds like it's it's been difficult. Um, and then other than that, I mean, I, I think this is a really good first step. So I'm in support of all this, but um, I do think it is a first step. And, and I appreciate that we're here doing this right now. I think it's really important. Um, I guess I do have a question. I, I can tell you I've even experienced issues relating to this firsthand in the city um, where there's rentals going on that should not happen. And um, we're just talking about a scenario where a landlord may be notified and then they seek to remedy that issue. I've seen instances where the landlord does not care because they're not here. So I'm just curious how, how that's addressed because there could be a situation, and I know there have been talking with community members and even from my own experience where something is being, a unit is being rented or sub-rented and there's a short-term rental and then it goes back to the landlord, but the landlord doesn't address the situation. Generally speaking, staff, uh, code enforcement staff would hold the property owner responsible for the property. He um, is hiring the landlord to do the maintenance and property management of the site. So we would specifically hold the property owner accountable for that, uh, the owner uh, of, of legal record for the property. Um, we have encountered, um, without going into specific cases that we've dealt with, but we have encountered situations where um, when the property owner was contacted, corrective measures were immediately put forth to, to address the problem. Um, so this is part of our work in addressing this issue. I, I wanted, um, Madam Chair and members of the commission, if I could just um, add one additional piece of information for you. I was looking at my notes from our presentation to the city council back in April, and after hearing some of the speakers um, who work in the hotel industry, I thought it would be important to share uh, with the commission uh, these notes. When we went to the council in April, we presented um, some information regarding short-term rental and hotel average daily rates. This is from 2017 versus 2020-2023. So this is the average daily rate for a hotel room and a short-term rental. 
in those two years, 2017, 2023. So in 2017, the average short-term rental rate was $180 a night. That was in 2017. In 2023, that rate went up to $474 a night. That's an over 263, that's roughly, if my math is correct tonight, it's roughly 263% increase over a six-year uh, period. When you look at the hotel average daily rate during that same time period from 2017 versus 2023, in 2017, the hotel rate the average daily rate was $292 per night. In 2023, it was $318 per night. So you can see a pretty significant difference between the increases for short-term rentals and hotel rooms and the impacts that it's causing in the hotel industry, right? So that increase from 2017 to 2023 for the hotel average daily rate is roughly 9%, according to my math versus over 260%. So it illustrates part of the problem that we're trying to deal with, is why does the short-term rental issue continue to be a problem? And the reason it continues to be a problem is because there's a significant amount of money behind it. And, though, and that money is what's causing the impacts to the community, to the neighborhoods, and to the residents that live in these buildings who see tenants that sometimes change on a daily or weekly basis in their units, in their complex. That's a quality of life issue. And part of code enforcement's job is to address quality of life issues in the community. So I thought I'd share that. I hope um, you appreciate that piece of info because I saw it and I thought I, I need to mention this to the commission. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'm in support of um, moving this resolution forward. My only other thought was that maybe there's some metrics on violation and or enforcement of violations. Maybe there's some sort of ratio, um, number of complaints received versus number of or n versus number of violations issued or something to track. But I'd be pleased to move this forward. I don't, don't mean to, it, maybe there's more p comments from our commissioners, but. Any additional feedback? Can I just ask a quick question that just came to mind when he when Vito was speaking? Is code enforcement currently or planning to after the adoption of tonight's, well, after council's adoption of this zone text amendment, are you guys doing undercover type things to on bookings and different things? Uh, Commissioner Matos, I would probably recommend that um, our code enforcement manager not delve into the specifics okay. of the investigation and okay. uh, to the extent there are specific methods utilized that would probably come to city council in closed session. Got for, it. Okay, cool. Um, in that case, I mean, I'm happy to make a motion. I would like to make one comment, um, if that's okay, if, unless anybody else. I'm fully in support of moving this forward. I think it's pretty, I think we pretty roundly agree on that. It's been a value of our city for a long time. Um, I think ultimately, I'm I'm, I was especially heartened with the language in this ZTA that does, in keeping with some of the court precedent that we've seen, make the platforms liable. Because if we can cut the problem off at the knees, we don't have to worry about enforcement, we don't have to worry about fees, we just make the platform liable and 
they need to be better about vetting, you know, like, here's the address. Like, can you substantiate that you are the property owner, that you live here? You know, maybe there's a prompt. It's like, looks like short-term rentals aren't allowed in your neighborhood. It would be very easy for them to do. They're clearly, um, you know, not incentivized to do anything about it or not scared enough to do anything about it. So I'm hopeful that if we can kind of cut these, cut this problem off kind of at the source, uh, that a lot of these problems will be, uh, will be, you know, mitigated for and that we, we just won't, there won't kind of be this trickle down effect of like us having to send people in uniform or not in uniform over to units to try to, try to, you know, kind of suss out what's happening. Um, do you want to make a motion? Sure, um, and I'm going to add some language. Um, so my motion is to move the staff recommendation and include a recommendation to council that they consider the adequacy of the existing fee structure when applied to third-party host websites or host entities and consider the adoption of a additional or uh, separate fee schedule when pursuing an, uh, an administrative action against those third-party sites. Is that good? How'd I do? Yes. Cool. That's my motion. I would second that. Chair gets to decide who seconds. Actually, it's whoever hits the little thingy first, so that's who decides. <laughs> oh man, the prompt wasn't even up for me. Motion by Commissioner Maddow, seconded by Commissioner Carvalero. I know, mine has been too. And the motion passes unanimously, uh, approving resolution number PC 23-1517 as a recommendation to City Council. There is no appeal process. Okay, great, thank you. And I'm just making a note that we are taking an action to uh, close the public hearing and move on to our next item, which is 12C. This is our final public hearing of the night. This is a zone text amendment above lower income protected units. And I'm going to hand this over to staff to give their presentation. Thank you, Chair and Commissioners. While we set up, I did want to introduce you to um, um, one of uh, the new additions to our staff, Michelle Montenegro, who is um, one of our new associate planners in the Long Range Planning Division. So she will be uh, presenting to the Planning Commission tonight. This is um, her first presentation, so um, be kind. <laughs> but she is um, uh, ready to um, present uh, this next item. So. While we set up, thank you. Welcome. Good evening, commissioners. Um, as Francisco mentioned, I'm a new associate planner with the Long Range Planning Division, so thank you for having me. Uh, we'll be presenting on this item for a zone text amendment for replacement requirements of above lower income protected units and new housing projects. So in the context of this presentation, we'll be covering a little bit of background in terms of state legislation. Then we'll be going to the directive timeline and the directive itself, and then we'll be covering proposed amendments that would be codified, and then we'll leave room for questions as well. 
So covering state legislation, we first wanted to define what a protected unit was because we'd be using this phrase quite a lot within the zone text amendment. So while we don't have a definition in our municipal code, we do refer to the definition found in government code section 66300, which is the Housing Accountability Act. So per that act, we have four different options or definitions for a protected unit. The first is a residential dwelling unit that is subject to recorded affordability restriction, either through a covenant or ordinance or law. And usually this is done through a 55 year restriction. And then the second option for a protected unit is occupied by low or very low income households. So in this case, there isn't a formal deed restriction, but it is occupied or rented by a low income household or individual. Um, so that is considered low or very low, uh, generally below the 80% area median income. The third protected unit type is subject to any form of rent or price control. In the context of the city, this would be considered the rent stabilized rent stabilization ordinance, which is Title 17 of our municipal code. And then the final protected unit type is units, any of the three above, that were withdrawn from rent utilizing Ellis Act. And the time of length um, that this is applicable has changed throughout state legislation. So we'll be covering that a little bit later in the presentation. So just to be clear, the zone text amendment is referring to those protected units that are subject to any form of rent or price control, that's the subject unit that we're considering today. So the first piece of state legislation is AB 2222. This was signed into effect in 2014, and this took into place all one-for-one -one replacement provisions for proposed housing development required at minimum the same number, proportion, and type of affordable housing units within the proposed development if the existing development had any existing occupied or vacant protected units. So there were two portions of AB 2222 that were not necessarily um, addressed properly that required some addressing in future state legislation. The first was that it was silent on how protected units that were also above lower income, meaning that they were rent stabilized and above an 80% AMI restrictability or occupancy would be replaced for one for one replacement. The second gap in AB 2222 were how units with unknown incomes we're going to be addressed. As part of housing applications, we do collect tenant information, including income information. So when units do not have income information, this would be addressed later on, but 2222 did not do this. So following 2222 is AB 2556, and this provided clarifications. And just to make a note that AB 2556 and 2222 were amendments to state density bonus law. Um, so it applied to only projects utilizing density bonus. So AB 2556 corrected 2222 by authorizing jurisdictions to make an election of how protected units that were also above lower income would be replaced. The first option would be to subject these units to a recorded affordability restriction for at least 55 years that would match the one-for-one -one replacement of very low and low affordable units, whether restricted or not. The second option is to replace in compliance with rent stabilization. So this would be status quo. Rent stabilized units with above lower income would return back as rent stabilized units in the proposed housing development. 
The second significant portion of AB 2556 was addressing how units with no income information would be replaced. This would be utilizing the HUD Comprehensive Housing Affordability Strategy per state law. The HUD Comprehensive Housing Affordability Strategy, also known as HUD-CHAS, is a data source received from the Census Bureau, and it's based on American Community Survey data. While it is obtained by HUD yearly, the data set is often a few years behind because American Community Survey data is a few years behind. So the latest data set is 2015 to 2019. But essentially how this is applied is for units with unknown incomes would have to have the same proportion of extremely low, very low, and low affordable units in proportion to the rest of renter units in the city. So rather than a one-size-fits-all kind of method, um, this portion of state law required a more contextual demographic characteristic that's applicable to the units with unknown incomes. So it provided a little bit more context. Following AB 2556 is SB 330, further amended by SB 8. This is also known as Housing Accountability Act. This expanded replacement requirements beyond projects that would solely use uh, density bonus. So it applied to any housing development project, regardless if they're using density bonus or not, if they are proposing to demolish existing protected units. The second larger component of SB 330 would go back to what protected units would be considered through those that were withdrawn from rent in the Ellis Act, but are 10 years preceding the submission of the application. So prior to this, it would apply to protected units five years preceding the submission of the application rather than 10 that were withdrawn through the Ellis Act. So covering state legislation, we'll move on to how the city itself moved forward with this item in terms of state legislation. So the first big milestone was in June 2019. This was done with a recommendation to staff from LRP project subcommittee to address above lower income protected units. A specific recommendation wasn't done, but it was a request to staff to address it. Later on, November 2020 is the second milestone where planning commission recommended the replacement with affordable deed restricted units. So again, the city has an election to make. The first is to replace all above lower income protected units with affordable deed restricted units. The second is to replace them with rent stabilized. Planning Commission recommended the former. October 2022, City Council directed staff to prepare a ZTA for the city's election. City Council opted to move forward with neither option, but more of a middle of the road approach. Their following directive was to replace above lower income protected units with deed restricted units up to 35% of the total units in the project and any other replacement units that are above lower income protected units would be subject to rent stabilized requirements, rent stabilization requirements, sorry. So this is also important to know in terms of the replacement requirements also qualify towards density bonus units, affordable restricted units, as well as inclusionary units uh, for inclusionary ordinance. A second component or major component of the city council resolution was conducting a feasibility study. 
staff was directed to hire a consultant that would study the city's election for this 35% cap and follow up with a proposed ZTA and results if needed. So in this case, if a policy approach is different from the 35% that came out of the study in terms of policy recommendations, we would follow that up with a future zone text amendment. Next, we'll be covering the proposed amendments to code. So this is done to Title 19. Specifically, the first amendment will be done to Section 1922030. This is affordable units required, also known as, a, as our inclusionary ordinance. Uh, there'll be two major amendments. The first is an addition of subsection G. Uh, subsection G reiterates the major points of SB 330. The first being that there is no net loss of housing units, and two, that one-for-one -one replacement re is required for those protected units. The second major proportion of, of uh, subsection G would be to explicitly state the city's election. This would be replacing above lower income protected units uh, for up to 35% of the total units of the project as deed-restricted units with all other units being rent-stabilized. The second addition to this section would be subsection H. This would merely cite Government Code 66300, also known as the Housing Accountability Act. This section would state that if there is an inconsistency between municipal code and the state government code, the state government code would prevail. The second code amendment would occur to 1922050. So this would be essentially our density bonus ordinance. Currently, our replacement provisions live in density bonus ordinance, but not anywhere else. So it's silent on all housing projects. That doesn't mean we're necessarily not compliant with state government code, but we have no other reference otherwise. So the previous section would rectify that. For this section, we are removing duplicate replacement provisions stated in state law. So we have explicit replacement requirements for all types of protected units. We are choosing to remove that to defer to state law due to the multiple revisions of this state law to ensure we're not, not in compliance with government state law. Um, the second portion of this is that we'll be referencing 65915, which is Zensi bonus law, and then we'll also be referencing 1922030G, which is our explicit election that we're being made. And that would cover my presentation. Be open for questions. Great, thank you. I just want to say that you have a really calming voice. Like, please do a podcast about this. Okay. Yeah, great, great job. I mean, literally so soothing. It was truly melodic. It is, Michelle, a gift. Thank you. Uh, do we have any questions for Ms. Montenegro? Commissioner Copeland? Sorry. Uh, hello and welcome. Um, thank you for the presentation. I, I just wanted to confirm that we're talking about 35%. The other 65% that would be deemed rent-stabilized those would start out at market market rate. Correct, per so, close to Hawkins Act, yes. Okay, thank you. Commissioner Lombardi. So um, following up on that question, and welcome, by the way, um, just wanna make sure I understand 35% rent stabilized would be 
rent stabilized at current market rate and then 65% at market rate. Correct. So if we're talking about 100% rent stabilized above lower income, yes. Okay. And so when we're looking at rent stabilized, the, the actual rate would jump to the current rates as opposed to what may have been there before the new project. Correct. So it's actually quite high, potentially, given current rental rates. Correct. Okay. So just wanted to make sure I understood that. And then um, also just understanding the timeline. So in November, the Planning Commission recommended to replace 100% of the units with um, affordable units. That was the Planning Commission's guidance then. Okay. And then when it went to City Council, they opted for this sort of middle ground approach that um, set 35%. Okay. Yeah. And at the same time, they asked for a study so that they could get some data to understand if that's an appropriate percent. Yeah. At okay. that point in time, uh, we were implementing a practice that we would return all of these units at rent stabilized. So that election being made up to the 35% cap was to codify uh, the zone text amendment and then follow up with the study uh, thereafter. Okay. Yeah. And then from city council, I got the sense that there was an urgency to all of this. And in particular, at the time, Mayor Pro Tem Shine had, had asked about, I, I believe, six months and having this come forward to us with a, a study, as well as this 35% ratio. I understand the study takes time. Um, I think everyone wanted this to move forward quickly. We're basically at that six-month point now. I'm just curious your um, opinion or take. What are the advantages of moving this forward right now, even though we don't have the study. And there's, like, could you help us understand the need to, to address this now versus waiting until that study is available? Of course. Uh, today, we do not have a codified election. So we have guidelines um, in term, or we have a practice of policy in place that's stated in our development permit application, for example, and other forms, but it's not codified. So I think that that's where the rush came in in terms of transparency to both applicants and planners to make sure that we're referencing something in our code that would stay our election. Um, I would say in terms for the feasibility study, we are currently onboarding a consultant. Um, so we're doing that work now. And there's an estimation of about three months once the study begins to end for their policy recommendations. And Commissioner Lombardi, just to add one piece of follow-up, I think part of having the election codified is with SB 330 and with those recent housing laws that really streamline the process, part of that requires the city to provide the applicant certain information when the application is submitted and part of having a codified election in terms of the replacement obligations ensures that it can't be challenged after the fact or through the process so long as the city has something that's within its municipal code about how the replacement obligations for protected units will work. Great, thank you. Um, other than that, I have, I have comments but no questions. Any additional, oh, uh, sorry, Commissioner Edwards, please go ahead. Uh, yeah, I really appreciated the uh, presentation. You know, in land use, we don't often get very exciting presentations that are very classic, but my experience with the city of West Hollywood, you're very consistent about that, so I appreciate it. Um, that being said, uh, as a new person, just trying to encapsulate what we're attempting here, 
So as my understanding, are we trying to capture more units to maintain uh, rent stabilization through this process? Like, you know, the state's asking to streamline, but we also have an opportunity to, you know, before we had other types of projects and, and density, is my understanding, my experience, we were just losing units. Yeah. But this allows us to capture more? That, that's correct, Commissioner. Okay. I think it's, it's just one of our goals. Not only do we want to create new housing units, but we try as much as possible to protect what we have in place and not lose some of our affordable units. So I think we're trying to do a combination of both just so that we can, you know, um, supplement some of our housing, um, uh, you know, availability in the city. So um, protecting affordable housing is definitely one of our existing goals um, th throughout. Um, it's definitely incorporated in our new housing element as well. Thank you. Any additional questions or comments? Go ahead. Thank you, Chair Jones. Great job. Um, love the presentation, and you do have a very soothing voice. Um, so just a quick, this is more of like a procedural question. When the income data for the previous tenants are unknown, we go off of the survey that you mentioned, and we get the, you know, percentage that's, closest to what it would be under that survey. Correct. I do recall, at least in my short time on this body, there was an instance, there was a project where we had to use that survey because previous income data for the tenants were not known. Does that happen often? And how can we as a city be proactive to ensure that we do have as much data on these rent protected units as possible. And the, just to follow up, the reason I'm asking that is, you know, I do think that it is an adequate calculation to use in lieu of data, but my concern is that there are instances where there's actually more affordable housing and that the, the um, survey data is actually a, maybe actuality a little bit less. So how can we, how, how do we operate in that space? Sure. Um, so one of the things that we do as part of the application process for new housing developments is that we do um, require that information from um, the applicant. So if there are any existing housing units um, that you actually, you know, give us the information about uh, the tenants that you have, what, what are their existing rental income rates. Um, I know the city is also building a um, uh, rental registry. Um, and that in itself will also um, include requirements to provide income um, um, information about particular tenants. So I know that database is being developed. I don't know if it's in place just yet, but those would be some of the you know items that we could use to um, verify information, um, you know, and potentially you know, or potentially use that that formula if we need to. Got it. Okay. So the the in, the idea is that when this rental registry comes to fruition, we would then start collecting data that would be able to minimize the amount of times when we have to rely on the absent survey data. That'd be one of the goals, correct? Okay, yeah, I mean, obviously, the city's interested in, you know, given this or, uh, zone text amendment for us in protecting as many affordable units as possible. My concern is just making sure that someone just doesn't come forward and say, we don't have the data, you know, and then how are we mitigating that? But it sounds like we're gonna have a process for that very soon. Correct. Okay, thank you. No further questions. Thank you, Chair. Okay, um, it sounds like we're all, do we have any additional comments or questions? 
you can make comments. Please go ahead. Uh, have we opened the public hearing? I'm sorry. So. No, we haven't. Um, David, <laughs> okay, let me ask you this. Does anybody else have any additional questions of staff before we move into, before we move into public comment? No? Thank you for checking me. I'm sorry. It's all becoming a blur at this point. Okay, so, David, do we have any public speakers? Uh, Chair, we have no public speakers in council chambers. Uh, we do have one uh, public speaker on our Zoom. Okay, platform. great. Thank you. Uh, okay, so we are going to move into the public comment portion of the public hearing. All right, the individual uh, with the number of 9751, please state your name and city of residence, and remember to star six to unmute. Thank you, Commission. I, uh, Jimmy Francis Wendell of West Hollywood. I just wanted to say that I am kind of disappointed with the council coming back when I agreed with the commission that 100% should be affordable. If you look at the regional housing assessment needs or needs assessment of the state of California, we really need to have 3,000 affordable units in this city by the end of the decade, which is basically only seven years away. And I don't think that's viable. There's been more market rate units coming with every development. As we just spoke about Airbnb, that is a major bone of contention for people being priced out or harassed out of their existing units. In order for you to live in this city, you have to live in a unit that was built before 1979. A lot of these apartments are subpar now. There's no regulation or requirement other than um, maintaining a unit and making sure that there's no leaking and so forth, but they don't have to have modern accommodations. Landlords don't have to accommodate that. Residents don't have the money to do these upgrades um, if necessary, like myself. That's why I had to move out of my unit because I was near an old uh, you know, unit, a laundry room that had asbestos and had mold. And I was being impacted by my health. And, I, you know, and it was near a dumpster and I was only five feet away. I mean, this is what I had to contend with. Now you have these units that would be optional for us residents to either get on a list or made available for us because we live in the city already or what we have to do because I've already been on a list for 10 years now for an affordable unit in the city. And I was not gonna stay and remain in my 61-year-old apartment. And that goes for $2,000. Now, before, it's like, and I had to try to survive and live there for seven years before I qualified for an affordable unit. I mean, now, that shouldn't be the case. That should not be the scenario. I just am kind of upset that the city council said 30%. That's not gonna be a achievable goal for us who are very low income, low income, and low to moderate income. You have moderate and market rates that are dominating this city. Average rents go for anywhere from three to $4,000 easily. And that's on the east side. When you go from Crescent Heights westbound, you could reach even more than that. And those of us wanna live in options that are the west side, but they're none available. And then if you don't have proper employment, then there's the discriminatory practices of, well, you don't have the income because you have to have 30% of your income that meets the required rent. So the only viable option for someone like me and others would be affordable units that are, you know, that are somewhat reasonable that we could afford and live in this city and have modern amenities. That is not the case. It shouldn't be Costa Hawkins that dominates in 2023. 
And here we are approaching 30 years, of, excuse me, 40 years of this city and the incorporation, and we're still having issues of housing and affordability and people being priced out. That is unacceptable. I, just, I, I think that there should be more than 50% or 75% of the housing stock for low to very low income, not moderate to above market rates. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, and that was our last public speaker for this item, Chair. Great, thank you. I'm gonna close the public comment portion of the public hearing, and we can move into deliberation and discussion. Sounds like question, Commissioner Copeland, please go ahead. Thank you, Chair. If you can uh, bear with me for a few minutes, because I, I had to make notes. I was on a plane, sorry. Um, I mean, this, this commission previously voted that these replacements be, these one-for-ones be affordable. Um, I think for good reasons, because we all know that rent-stabilized units starting at market rate are not going to be in any way affordable any time soon. And the state has consistently put laws in place like the Housing Accountability Act to make it easier for developers to build more multifamily um, rental housing to help solve the housing crisis. But they also later realized that people were being displaced um, and rent-stabilized homes being demolished as a result, and um, they finally wrote a code that protects that existing rental unit by requiring the one-for-one -one replacement. And then, in a very rare move, they actually, actually gave uh, localities that were rent-regulated like ours the option to choose should those replacements be all, all affordable or, or rent-stabilized, and that's very unusual. That doesn't usually happen with the overreach that, that we have in housing. Um, because certainly they realize that, again, a market rate unit replacing a rent-stabilized unit for a long-term tenant was not going to be affordable. So they left it up to the discretion of, of the localities. Um, that could disincentivize some new development on particular buildings, but I think they prioritized avoiding the loss of existing housing over that, that's already affordable, over... Um, replacing, you know, o over that, and I think that if that happens, um, certainly if it's not going to be profitable enough to, 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 with the number of units they can put on that, they can certainly find another location to build it more and make it more profitable. But I think the priority has to be what we're always telling people. You have to put up with this larger building you don't like, or less of this or more of this, because we need affordable, we need affordable, and that handful of affordables means you have to have this and this and this. And here we have a rare opportunity to, to say, okay, these are going to be all affordable. And um, if we don't take that opportunity, I mean, just it just seems like hypocrisy to me to, to not take advantage of, of that um, opportunity to do that. So replacing demolished units that people could previously afford with expensive market rate units and then rent stabilizing them. It's not really creating additional affordable housing. It's not really a win for the community that, that I see. And we're always saying that we want to keep afford housing affordable. We want to keep rent stabilized units affordable and we want to create more affordable housing. So this is to me, we've been given an opportunity to do that. And on the rare occasion that we're allowed to do that when that rent-stabilized housing is demolished. I, I, I think the Planning Commission was correct in their previous um, judgment in recommending that those be one-for-one, one, should be uh, affordable, and uh, 
hopefully some of us will still uh, agree with that. But those are my thoughts at, at this point. High, high rate market rent units that you then add rent stabilization to uh, three, four, five thousand dollars is not really going to um, create more affordability or keep people ex in their existing rent stabilized homes. So that's, that's it for me right now, Chair. Thank you for your patience listening. Oh, thank you for your patience. Um, Commissioner Gregoire, go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with Commissioner Copeland. You know, unfortunately, um, the City Council didn't go along with the Planning Commission's recommendation on this, and they've given staff direction to come back with what's being proposed tonight. So we're being asked to uh, look at this, you know, in light of the direction that the elected City Council members have given us. So. Uh, I'm proposed to support staff's recommendation because I do believe it uh, it reflects city council's direction on this. Um, but yeah, I do agree that uh, it does seem like somewhat of a like a lost opportunity um, since state law has authorized that we can do that. But uh, I do I do support staff's recommendation and recommend recommending this to the city council. Thank you. Commissioner Lombardi. Thank you. Um, so it was interesting observing the city council meeting and I guess this is just my observations and, and how I kind of saw it play out. Um, but first of all, I wanna say I'm really in support of this measure and the opportunities that, that state legislation has presented. Um, that being said, we know what the discussions were previously um, at the Planning Commission, and it seemed like at City Council there was some debate about what was appropriate, hence this consultant study, and there was an idea at least that that be a key factor in all of this. It also seems like perhaps no action is, um, you know, not necessarily helpful either. I think that there was a sense of urgency when this went to city council. So I'm always looking for efficiency and it does it does feel like this might come back to us again. Uh, at the same time, do we wanna pause it until we have all the information? That doesn't sound great either because there's really no official stance right now if I understand correctly. Um, I, I think that the, the real issue is um, there's, contradicting needs here. Um, we have our arena numbers that we need to meet that are very high. We wanna help promote um, and encourage development and there's a cost associated with that. So one of the concerns is discouraging development. But at the same time, we also wanna preserve our existing housing stock. And a lot of that is also affordable housing, housing stock. And so that's where the real conundrum lies and where I think this 35% number is a little bit confusing, you know, in terms of where did it come from and what does it really mean and is it appropriate? And it, it does seem like, you know, it sounds great in principle, but then you realize at least now that would be market rate units. So what is the appropriate ratio to encourage development, but also not, um, you know, disproportionately remove housing stock and create 
luxury housing, essentially. I think that's the real challenge. So I, I don't know. Um, to me, I'm just wondering if we maybe were to include a motion um, that we receive an update on consent calendar, say three months out on the status of um, the consultant study, just so it doesn't slip through the cracks so that we're aware of where that is and where it lies um, so that we can help gauge and guide when maybe we look at this again because we may find that's really not the right number. We may find that it, it is the correct number. Um, so that's kind of where I, I stand on this right now. Thanks. I did want to just briefly respond to uh, to a point I think that was uh, from Commissioner Lombardi, which I think is helpful to think of, which is uh, it's accurate that we don't have an election presently in our code. So if this moves forward and the council adopts it and it becomes part of the zone uh, zoning code, then it does it will automatically come back to the extent the the consultant study comes in and that's reviewed. Um, and and I think it's it's uh, uh, certainly feasible uh, if the commission's in favor to the suggestion Commissioner Lombardi had about sort of a status update regarding uh, the consultant study. But I did want to flag once codified and part of the zoning code, then any amendment to that would come back to the commission during the sort of standard Okay, process. thank you, that's that's reassuring. I think the only reason why I'm looking at maybe having something agendized is because it did seem like there was a sense of urgency and a desire that we would kind of button this all up right now, but that study's not here right now, so that's why I feel like maybe it's important to just make sure we understand where it is in a few months. Thanks. Any other questions or comments? So just I wanna make sure that I'm clear. So essentially, um, Michelle, as you mentioned, it's just important that we have some kind of an election right now in terms of the, the number. So we will make this so that we have, we're recommending that something be in place and then once the study has been conducted or is being conducted, we can make additional recommendations based on that, right? Correct. It's just implementing some, some kind of a number. Codifying something. Okay. So we have objectives. Okay. Standards, yeah. All right. Great. Can, can I add a comment? Real yeah, go quick? ahead. <clears throat> I just want to agree with what, what Commissioner Lombardi just said, and I'll tell you why. Because in three months, according to staff, we're going to get back this consultant assessment with a recommendation. I imagine that there would be lag time between the time that that is released and this body considers or reconsiders this issue again. I think that if we were to schedule or agendize, even if it was a consent update in three months, then at least we would know when it is available for us to start reading in advance. I think the more time with big ticket items and big materials, the better. And if my understanding is incorrect, staff, please correct me, but I mean, I'm just saying if in three months we're able to start reading this thing and it's actually brought to us as something that's available for us to start reading before the item is actually agendized on the Planning Commission agenda, I think that that would be really helpful. Is that, is that my, is my understanding correct? Correct. So our feasibility study would come up with different policy recommendations if the city election does seem to have an undue burden on development, for example. So we can definitely bring the study forth and the results of the study first, if that's what commission chooses to do. 
Yeah, and <clears throat> I would say that the um, <clears throat> direction really is to take the results of that survey to the city council first. Oh, okay. so that they can then determine whether or not there need to be any adjustments. If there are to be any required adjustments, then they would direct staff to create a new zone text amendment, bring it through the, the procedure, um, at which time then the planning commission would actually review the study and all of that. So it would go to the city council first. So the study wouldn't, wouldn't we wouldn't review it before them, they would essentially review it, deem a decision, Correct. and then the dis outcome of that decision in the form of the zone text amendment would then come back to us. Correct, correct, right. Okay, so that's, that's still interesting. I think it would be, I and mean, I show up at all the council meetings because I have no life, but I think it would be great for us to um, at least know when yeah. it's being agendized. So like if we have a planning commission meeting on a Thursday and it's being uh, agendized in two weeks on a Monday at a council meeting, then it would be great for us to just know that it's on the agenda so we could start reading it or if it's available to us, yeah. we could read it. And I can also add that as part of our scope with the um, consultant, we've actually included a presentation to the planning commission. So, you know, that can happen after the, the city council meeting just to kind of provide folks with an update, like what do all these numbers mean? What, what you know, what were the results of the study? So we can do that regardless of whether or not, like there's a ZTA that has to be processed after that. Um, so we have that baked into the scope of work right now for the consultant, so. Totally, thank you, that sounds great. What do you think? Go ahead, Commissioner Lombardi. My only thoughts are, I know that these consultant studies can take a while sometimes and have some snags. So um, it, during director's reports, we've always been getting great updates along the way. So I have confidence in all that, but it does feel important enough that maybe we ask that there's a status update and it does seem like there might be a pretty large document. So I know at least for me, it's easier for me to know that's coming. Should I not be able to go to a city council meeting um, or if, it takes longer to conduct the survey because there's data snags in terms of collecting data or that kind of thing. That's my, my only thought there, just because it seems like it's important. Okay. Yes. So, no, that, go ahead. I mean, I'm prepared to move this forward once uh, everyone else has, has had a chance to weigh in. Do we have any other questions or comments, comments specifically? No? It sounds like we're pretty aligned here. Mm -hmm. So do you want to make a motion, Commissioner Lombardi? For sure. Um, does staff have any updates that needed to be incorporated into the resolution? We will add a section above um, section two stating that the findings of the study will be presented to planning commission uh, following completion. I don't know if we want to. I think, uh, Commissioner Lombardi, I think perhaps the recommendation would be to move the zone text amendment forward uh, with a request as part of the motion, uh, just based on sort of your, uh, what you stated earlier. Uh, to receive an update on the status of the consultant study um, uh, in three months' time to the Planning Commission. Okay, great. I just wanted to make sure there wasn't anything else that needed to be captured. So, yeah, I would like to move this forward um, with the idea that we also have an update on consent at the Planning Commission meeting, at a Planning Commission meeting in about three months from now. 
um, so that we can just understand the status of the consultant survey and know when that is expected to be available. We do have a motion and we do have a second, so we can call the question. And the motion carries, noting six ayes, and Commissioner Copeland voting no. Uh, this is approving uh, the recommendation to City Council, resolution number PC 23-1516. There is no appeal process. Great, thank you. And uh, just as a point of order, I am just noting that uh, the public hearing for 12C has been closed. And we are moving on to our next item, which is 13, new business, there is none. Item 14 is unfinished business, there is none. 15 is excluded consent calendar, there is none. Item 16 is items from staff. Uh, 16A is planning manager's update. Yes, thank you, um, Chair and uh, Commission members. I just wanted to give you an update on some of the following planning commission meetings um, and some of the items that we have on the docket. Um, so as you all know, the June 1st meeting is canceled because um, Pride is happening and this, uh, all this entire park will be sort of uh, uh, roped up in preparation for the festivities, so um, we won't be having a meeting in, on June 1st, but we will be having a meeting on uh, June 15th, um, and there are a few items on that uh, agenda currently. Um, we have uh, a project that is requesting off-site sale of alcohol. That's for Total Wine and More at 1130 North La Brea, so that's coming before you. Uh, the Arts Club is uh, requesting an extension of their permit. So because this is their se second extension request, that actually comes to the Planning Commission for review. Um, in addition, there is a, uh, another second extension to um, a subdivision, um, just a residential subdivision. Um, and then lastly, there is a consent item, which is um, uh, findings of general plan consistency for the city's capital improvement plan uh, for the next fiscal year. Um, so those are some of the items that are uh, coming up. Um, and I wanted to report that there are no um, items on the uh, long-range planning subcommittee um, agenda for the next meeting as well, but um, we will provide any updates um, if any of those do uh, uh, come on board um, before our next meeting. Um, also, our um, city architect did want to mention that um, the city of West Hollywood will be presenting a community event called Pops and Parts. It's a symposium um, that's going to be held on Saturday morning, June 10th from 9 a.m. Uh, to 1 p.m. at the Pacific Design Center's Silver Screen Theater. Uh, so the symposium is going to examine the changing relationships between public and private space in West Hollywood um, and will include speakers from um, diverse economic, social, cultural, and environmental perspectives who will be exploring the value of integrating new public-oriented and publicly accessible spaces in new private developments. Um, so um, typical to some of those um, interesting, uh, you know, quasi-public uh, uh, parks um, that are very popular in other cities, such as New York, for example. Um, so, um, you know, attendees will be encouraged to participate in the conversation with speakers, so that's kind of like really hands-on. Um, so we invite folks to join us for that um, coming up uh, June 10th. And that's it for me. Great, sure, thank, thank you. you, Francisco. Okay, item, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, please go ahead. Are there any design review meetings coming up? For design review, good question, Commissioner. Um, 
do not have any design review subcommittee items um, on the June 8th um, meeting. I think we're wondering the same question for SASE. Of course. Um, for SASE, there are no pending items. Um, so, none at this time. Same as anything else. Can I just ask a quick question? Yeah. Um, so, are we, because there's a new member of the commission, are we having to revisit subcommittee appointments? After elections. It's after elections? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. All right. Thanks. Cool. Okay. Item 17 is public comment. David, do we have anyone um, on the virtual comment? No, we have no public comments. Okay. Item 18 is items from commissioners. Does anyone have any comments this time? Commissioner Copeland? Hi. Uh, yes. For my final uh, comment this evening, I would also like to... Uh, Thank um, former Commissioner Thomas for her service, and I enjoyed working with her and uh, serving with her on this commission. And she was a, uh, a valuable member, made a lot of uh, contributions, and I just wanted to uh, say I appreciate that very much. That's all. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to take a moment to also thank Commissioner Thomas for her service. I think it was a joy to uh, to serve with her, and um, you know she will be missed. But I am just also want to express really a lot of gratitude for everyone that's on this commission. I'm really excited to be given the opportunity to serve with you all in this capacity. It's truly an honor. Um, so I'm looking forward to working with all of you. And thanks to the staff. Uh, and here we go again. Any other comments? Go ahead. Yes, I also wanted to thank Commissioner Thomas or Vice Chair uh, Thomas for all of her time here on the Planning Commission. I will say it was an absolute delight having her here and I really appreciated her insight and um, her, her love and, and dedication to this city and, and it's, it's really commendable. Um, so she will be missed. Other than that, it just it's a little bit early but happy Pride. I think we'll be back after, after that. So right around the corner. Thank you. Awesome. Anyone else? Okay. Oh, please go ahead, Mark. Um, it's the end of my first uh, Planning Commission meeting, and I want to express my appreciation for everybody who serves and who's served before. Um, there's always something fascinating to me about the opportunity for people to be part, you know, to participate in community. It's a gift if you ever look across the world. What we have here is unique, and I also appreciate everybody who showed up to give public testimony. Um, they're essential to what we do. And I really appreciate staff, uh, the professional, um, what staff brings to the table, right? We've all gone through college and gone through the whole process and always wanted to have the opportunity to apply our trade and, and our skills to something that's impactful. And welcome to new staff members. And I authentically look forward to working with every party on this dais. It's really an honor and truly a privilege to be up here, and I take it very seriously, so thank you. Okay, thank you, and welcome, Mark. Okay, 
So I uh, just want to note, I'm, I'm going to adjourn the meeting. I just want to note again that uh, the June 1st meeting is canceled for Pride. Um, hope to see everyone there. Eric and I will be on the float. Um, probably not wearing what we're wearing right now. So looking forward to that. Uh, but we will adjourn to a regularly scheduled meeting on Thursday, June 15th here in Council Chambers at 6.30 p.m. We look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for coming, everyone.